How should we handle those one category wonders? I wonder. We'll talk about that and more with Glenn Colton next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way. Because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 16th. It's show number 23 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Glenn Colton from FantasyAlarm.com and the Colton and the Wolfman show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. We'll ask him about his take on Kevin Gausman, Nick Castellanos, those one category wonders, roster management, the state of the fantasy industry, some of his thumbs up and thumbs down players for the rest of the season, and a lot more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at the Mets middle infield, Adrian Gonzalez, some predicted closer changes and more, and from the American League with Jock Thompson, looking at the Houston rotation without Lance McCullers, the Houston outfield without Josh Reddick, the Oakland infield without Trevor Plouffe, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon reports on St. Louis pitching prospect Luke Weaver. In our playing time commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at San Diego outfielder Jose Perella. In our frequent flyers comment, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Oakland third baseman Matt Chapman and Seattle starter Sam Gaviglio. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, matchups analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Arizona left-hander Robbie Ray, Tampa rookie right-hander Jake Faria, and other pitcher matchups this weekend. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about my 10-week team assessment. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The Twins and Milwaukee both in first place. You didn't see that coming. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report, and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Let's start our uh, survey of the National League environment in New York, where the Mets right-hander Matt Harvey has a stress injury to his scapula, which I think is a bone near the shoulder. He received a platelet-rich plasma injection, so he's going to avoid surgery for now. He's going to do some rehab until the pain is gone and then maybe a throwing program. One way or another, he's going to miss uh, a number of weeks. Uh, so to say Matt Harvey has been a disappointment so far, Nick, is an understatement. Yeah, it really is. I, this is, uh, you know, Matt, Matt Harvey looked like he should have been an ace when he first came up. This is his third major injury since he got to the majors in 2012. And this season has just been really, really uh, difficult for him. Uh, 5.25 ERA, 1.45 whip. Uh, 4.43 XERA, so uh, some bad luck, but not as much as we would we would uh, perhaps uh, have hoped. Uh, Dom is at 6.9 strike strikeouts per nine innings, control at 4.5 walks per nine innings, leading to a very poor command ratio, uh, and six PQS disasters. No uh, Dom starts, uh, lots of threes and twos. So uh, Harvey has not been pitching well, and. Uh, uh, who knows how long the stress injury has, has been there, and that certainly may have been contributing to some of that. Well, Nick, you you mentioned the uh, 
command ratio, 1.5 strikeouts per walk is very poor nowadays. We're usually looking for an elite starter should be over three and a, and a competent starter should be around three. So at 1.5, uh, Matt Harvey certainly hasn't been getting the job done. And it is a disappointment because I remember when he first came up, we thought this was maybe another Tom Seaver coming along. Right, yeah. I mean, this was this was going to be a, uh, an absolute ace for the Mets. And, and while he's had ace moments... Uh, he certainly hasn't uh, has been able to sustain that, and the the low the low dom rate and the high control uh, are very very bad signs. Is there any chance you think that Matt Harvey can turn things around? This has been going on for a while. Uh, you know, you've got to wonder. It's one of those things, as you said, it's been going on for a while. Uh, there's a lot of talent in there somewhere, but uh, I would not be betting on Matt, Matt Harvey at this point. Uh, especially with this latest injury now uh, throwing a, another wrench into the uh, into his career. And of course, there were those stories we heard earlier this season about his lifestyle choices and some bizarre behavior or unusual behavior. Uh, all of the things point to perhaps uh, this is a kind of situation where it's going to be difficult for fantasy owners to take advantage. Uh, meanwhile, the Mets have to keep uh, playing their games. They were going to have a six-man rotation they were talking about. I guess that's over with. Phil Hertz covered it for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Nick, what is Phil Hertz saying? Yeah, the the six, the six man rotation kind of lasted probably for one one uh, turn through the rotation, and maybe not, not even a complete one at that. They were doing that to keep uh, to keep uh, Rob Gesellman in the rotation because he pitched pretty well. But at this point, uh, Harvey loses five percent of his projected innings. Uh, that could of course get worse. Um, the rotation now looks like Degrom, Gesellman, Mats, Lugo, and Wheeler uh, at this point. And Greg Pyron actually, by coincidence, happened to be looking at the Mets rotation earlier in the week, and we should say this was before Harvey got hurt, and he covered this idea of the six-man rotation. Uh, what did he think about the likelihood of it working? Well, you know, it, it looked like it was something that could work because Gaselma has pitched very well since he came back to the rotation in late May. And if, if you look at individual games, Gaselma has thrown uh, now five outings, including one on uh, on Thursday against Washington. And... Uh, Looked okay in all in those outings. Three earned runs and six innings pitched. One earned run in seven innings. Two and five and a third. No earned runs in six and two thirds. All was going fairly swimmingly until Thursday night when he gave up seven earned runs in five innings to the Nationals. But if you look kind of behind that, uh, there were some disappointing numbers. Three strikeouts, five strikeouts, six strikeouts, four strikeouts, three strikeouts, all of in about six to six innings pitched and. Uh, then about two walks going along with all of that. So uh, back to that command ratio was not getting it up where where we would like to see it. And it's kind of ironic if you go back and look at the um, his season to date line and compare that with his last 31 day line. BPV is exactly the same: 71 BPV, 71 BPV. Uh, his ERA, expected ERA, 4.46 for the season, 4.41 over the last 31 days. I. I kind of think what was happening with Gaselman was the um, early on he was he was uh, having some bad luck and the RA was higher than it should have been and, and some of that regression has certainly happened over the past month and things now look a little bit better but uh, I'm not ready to jump back on the bandwagon yet he's a guy we expected to have a, a pretty good season based on what we saw at the end of last season and I don't see the skills being there for that to happen uh, just quite yet. 
they one of the reasons they wanted to use the six-man rotation was because Seth Lugo has a uh, problem in his elbow, a partially torn UCL, and I think they thought that they'd be able to hold down his innings and maybe uh, nurse him through to the end of the season without a further problem. And I believe Zach Wheeler also on an innings limit, which would have helped a six-man rotation. What do you think happens with those two pitchers if they're forced back into a five-man rotation, or are the Mets going to be going with these five guys and finding somebody else? Well, you know, it's hard to tell. That you're you're right. Those are um, those were things the Mets were certainly thinking about in trying to prevent further injuries to uh, to, to Lugo and and to Wheeler. Um, and you know, it's hard to tell. Right now, they're they're going to need to be looking for someone. Uh, they probably will be taking a look at that over the next month to see if they can find someone. Um, there are certainly problems. Uh, Degrom uh, has has had some problems. Didn't complete more than four innings in his two recent starts, um, and Harvey, of course, had some has had some dreadful outings lately. The Mets rotation has frankly been a bit of a mess over the last uh, the last month or so. The Mets are also grappling with some injuries that have taken down both halves of their middle infield. Shortstop as Rubel Cabrera went on the DL Tuesday. Neil Walker on Thursday. He's got a hamstring tear or a partial tear. That doesn't sound good. Phil Hurts keeping busy covering the uh, drama in Queens. Uh, he's on the job for playing time today. So what's going to happen with this Mets infield situation? Well, Walker at this point is expected to miss several weeks. Cabrera could be back next week and maybe just have a minimum stay on the DL. Uh, on Thursday night, T.J. Rivera was at second base and, of all things, was hitting cleanup, which uh, may give you an idea of the Mets, the, the mess the Mets are in at the moment. Um, uh, Gavin Chetney was recalled from Class AAA Las Vegas, was the Mets' number seven prospect coming into the season, but uh, hitting only 249 with a 662 OPS so far this season. Did much better last season and is likely to share some time at second base with Rivera. Um, Entering play on June 15th, Rivera had 170 at-bats and 82 uh, power index, so uh, that's not the kind of guy you expect to see hitting cleanup in your lineup. Really not the guy you would want to see hitting anywhere in your in your lineup. I noticed on the BaseballHQ.com depth charts for the Mets, Rivera's not even listed as a middle infielder. He's listed as a backup first baseman to Lucas Duda. So uh, this looks like a situation where the Mets uh, might be scrambling to find replacements. Uh, they have a, a young prospect in the minors, of course, Ahmed Rosario is their top prospect, and he's a middle infielder. Why don't they just call him up? And they say they're not ready to promote him. He's, he's it's still at AAA. Um, the... What the Mets are saying, and if you if you think about this from a development standpoint, it makes sense. They don't want him riding the train back and forth between the majors and the minors. They say when he come up, he'll come up when he's able to stay, ready to stay at the major league level. Uh, that could happen if Cabrera can't make it back next week as expected because they may be in, in really dire straits. But if you look at where the Mets are in the standings, they're in pretty dire straits anyway. Uh, they're, they're about nine games behind Washington in the, uh, in the NL East, and in terms of the uh, the wild card, they're about nine games behind in that as well. So uh, the Mets are quickly falling out of things here, uh, and they may not want to rush a trop prospect in the hope of salvaging things at this point with the injuries piling up the way they have been. I have to ask, uh, Jose Reyes has been maybe the worst player on the team, but he's a shortstop. Could he find himself blundering back into some uh, playing time just because? He probably is going to blunder back into some playing time at least in the next week with Corbera on the DL. Uh, uh, Jose Reyes will probably be filling that shortstop gap in the short term. 
In Los Angeles, the Dodgers lost first baseman Adrian Gonzalez to the DL with a herniated disc. That's bad news for a guy his age. Jock Thompson covered the story for Playing Time today at BaseballHQ.com. What are the roster and playing time ramifications with uh, Adrian Gonzalez out of the lineup? That's really bad news for uh, uh, for Adrian Gonzalez with that herniated disc. Uh, at this point, what happens is Cody Bellinger takes over at first base, and, and so the Cody Bellinger era has uh, truly begun. Uh, we, we had uh, talked about it earlier. He's been hitting so well, uh, even playing in the outfield, but uh, now he becomes the, the, the full-time first baseman. Chris Taylor is likely to get a shot now in the uh, in left field, um, and, and Chris Taylor has been hitting extremely well at this point, uh, 100 and, 165 at bats, 303 batting average, eight home runs, 28 RBIs, seven stolen bases. So uh, Chris Taylor should be able to man that left field slot, I think, extremely well, uh, certainly in the short term and perhaps even in the longer term as he as he sort of settles into it. Baseball HQ is actually projecting Taylor to continue on at a near $20 level. He's a $21 player so far this year on the strength of the stats that you just mentioned. Uh, we're looking for maybe seven or eight more home runs. I would take the over on that, you know, Nick, because uh, the home runs are really flying out this year, and I think the, the baseball might have something to do with it. But uh, certainly Chris Taylor looks like a, a get, and uh, there's no arguing that Cody Bellinger, in the very unlikely case that he's in your free agent pool in your league, uh, first of all, you probably need a better league. But uh, second of all, Cody Bellinger looks like he's for real. We're projecting he could finish the year with 40 home runs. Yeah, he could indeed. I mean, you know, this is this is a very different situation from what the Mets have. The, there are very competent replacements here. Um, for, for the Dodgers. And, uh, honestly, Adrian Gonzalez had been struggling so much this season that, uh, the, the herniated disc news, uh, may be what they need to just kind of ease him out and let Bellinger and Taylor, uh, have a, have a full go at it. The one, uh, wart on Cody Bellinger's otherwise pristine uh, skin, I guess we could say, is that he strikes out a lot. He's striking out almost a third of the time so far. He seems to have sorted that out a little bit in the last week, but, you know, you don't want to go by one week. Is this proneness to strikeouts going to be a problem for Cody Bellinger, especially as the news gets around, uh, you know, major league pitchers? They adapt quickly and very uh, ruthlessly. But they, they do, and, you know, we're we're uh, Cody Bellinger is in a situation where, uh, he comes up, the pitchers adapt, he adapts, the pitchers adapt. It's, it's that sort of thing certainly going on with Cody Bellinger right now. So far, he's shown an ability at least to keep hitting the ball out, uh, even though his batting average has dropped a bit. Uh, and I think we're kind of projecting his batting average will sort of settle in the area it is now. Uh, 254 at the moment, projected 261 over the remainder of the season. Uh, and certainly, if he's hitting 40 home runs and batting in close to 100, a 260 batting average is going to be uh, very, very acceptable. It sure is, and uh, his hard contact index so far this year is 18% above the league average. Uh, over the last week, he's really been hammering it as well. Uh, returning to Chris Taylor for a second, Jock Thompson in his coverage of Playing Time today, Nick, said that uh, Taylor's been struggling early in June, and uh, perhaps this Dodger left field situation could be a little more fluid than uh, we might think to look at the early news. Well, you know, that's that's possible. Uh, you're, we, we've got... Uh... Uh, Taylor has struggled a little bit in early June, although the past week has been pretty good. A uh, home run, four RBIs, 292 batting average, uh, stolen three bases. So uh, that's possible that they, the Dodgers are certainly not going to, uh, they're, they're doing well enough in the overall standings. They can't afford to play Taylor if he doesn't, uh, doesn't produce. Uh, so uh, that could be a little bit of a more fluid situation, but uh, 
overall, it looks to me like Taylor could really straighten things out. Is its hard contact index has been uh, 93 to date, 84 over the past week, 87 over the past month. So uh, hitting the ball well, uh, not not incredibly well, but hitting the ball. Very, very solidly anyway. Finally, Nick, fantasy owners are always on the lookout for changes in closer situations, and right on time, our bullpen's columnist Doug Dennis is predicting three closer changes in in the National League before the All-Star break, and one of them's already happened in Pittsburgh. Yeah, Doug went out on a limb and said these are going to happen, and certainly one of them's already happened. Uh, Felipe Rivero, which we talked about last week, uh, was moved into the closer role, supposedly in a committee situation, but got the first two save opportunities in Pittsburgh. Uh, so certainly a guy that uh, you, you want to take a chance on at this point if he happens to still be on your waiver wire. Brandon Maurer has actually pitched pretty well for San Diego, and his BPV is a, a nice 150 BPV at a 1.17 whip. Those look very good over the course of the season. What doesn't look so good is his 5.25 earned run average, uh, and so you look at the skills and say, those look pretty good, but that earned run average, that that's bad. And uh, if you're trying to stay in a race, that's not a good thing, and really has been trounced over the past month. So uh, manager Andy Green has said he wants to keep Maurer in the closer role, uh, but admitted there's been a problem. And Brad Hand, Hand, whom we talked about uh, just a couple of weeks ago, is pitching extremely well uh, and certainly would be someone that could uh, who could take over that role. Uh, As the trade deadline approaches, I think we would not be surprised to see either Hand or Maurer going somewhere else. When I look at the San Diego situation, and Maurer has had a really rough last 30 days, but overall, he's uh, striking out 10.1 guys per nine innings. He's uh, walking only around two. His command ratio is an excellent 5.4 strikeouts for every walk. He's not giving up home runs. I'm really at a loss to understand where this 5.25 ERA is even coming from. His expected ERA is like two runs shy, shy of that at 3.29. This guy must be having some horrible luck in strand rate. Yeah, you know, I think what, what you've got with Maurer, if you take a look, is, is some bad luck. And the other thing to remember with a, with a relief pitcher, uh, is that the number of innings is so small that even one bad outing can, uh, can send the ERA skyrocketing. Uh, and Maurer has had a couple of, a couple of games where, where things have not gone well at all. Uh, for example, on June the 8th against Arizona, uh, he didn't get anybody out, allowed four earned runs. Uh, it's th- that kind of thing will absolutely ruin your your earned run average when you're only pitching a, a couple of innings a week. So uh, that's the kind of thing I think that has been a problem with uh, from our. It's really been a couple of outings that have caused the difficulty, not the overall skill level. Uh, strand rate currently is at fifty percent, hit rate at thirty six percent. Both of those things higher than they than they ought to be. Uh, so there's certainly been some bad luck there from our as well. And I noticed that in the last 31 days, his strand rate is only right around that 50% mark. But uh, otherwise, for the year, it would probably be pretty normal. Now, the problem with that is, and we can look at it dispassionately as analysts and say, well, you know, these things happen. But if you're the manager of a major league team and you see these big flameouts, a couple of games occur where the guy just can't get anybody out or is giving up one hit after another and allowing all his runners to, to score there's a kind of a recency bias in managers too, where they think the last time I saw this guy pitch, I didn't like what I saw. And they kind of tend to ignore everything that went before it in, on some occasions. And that augurs poorly for the continued um, closer role of Brandon Moore. Yeah, it does. It, it certainly does. I mean, it's one of those situations where um, you, you, you put him out there with your nerves on edge, wondering what he's going to do. Uh, when he's supposed to be out there saving the game, and and you've got a guy like Brad Hand who's who's pitching lights out, uh, you begin to think, well, maybe I ought to have the other guy out there at this point. 
and you may get very quick on the trigger if things don't uh, don't turn around very very swiftly. Uh, and before you have an outing like that, one where he gave up four earned runs but didn't get anybody out, you may pull him after the first or second batter uh, and go with someone else before things get completely out of hand. And in Arizona, that was the uh, other National League team that uh, that Doug Dennis looked at as far as a potential closer change. We've actually been thinking about this for a while, I believe. Nick Fernando Rodney has not been good this year. 582 ERA, 138 whip, and this is when Doug wrote this up a few days ago. He's striking out nine guys, but he's walking five almost, so his command ratio is under two. That's really poor for a closer. We expect more like five in the case of Brandon Moore. Uh, Fernando Rodney doesn't seem long for the role, but what are they going to do? Is it finally Archie Bradley time? I think it's finally Archie Bradley time. I mean, Archie Bradley has been uh, has been one of those pitchers that we've been waiting on because he had great stuff uh, for a couple of years, and he really seems to have taken to the bullpen uh, as he's been moved there this year. A, a 2.53 expected earned run average, 175 BPV, an actual earned runnings of 1.35 and a 0. 0.90 whip. Uh, pitching extremely well, really liking his role, I think, in the bullpen. Uh, and uh, I think it's very close to being Archie Bradley time as the closer in Arizona. I'm always interested about guys. Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, Brandon Moore's expected ERA is quite a lot below his actual. In this case, uh, uh, Archie Bradley's the opposite case. His ERA is actually below his expected ERA, which indicates that there's maybe potential for his ERA to rise. Is that a concern? Uh, you know, it, 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 if I'm a manager, I'm probably not looking at his expected ERA on Baseball HQ anyway. But uh, there, that is a concern. I mean, there's some regression going to happen. He's going to have a bad outing or two here and there, perhaps. But uh, I don't think it's a real concern, given the skills that he's been displaying uh, and the consistency that he's been displaying in, in that bullpen role. Do you think maybe that we need to be very a little more cautious when we're talking about expected ERA versus real ERA when we're talking about relievers? You mentioned that they pitch so few innings and that one outing here or there can really sway or swing the, uh, the actual outcomes that maybe we need to be careful, shall we say, when we look at uh, Archie Bradley or any reliever and we say, geez, his expected ERA is around 2.5, his real ERA is about 1.2. This guy's bound for a regression, and maybe with relief pitchers it isn't all always so because you know he doesn't have to do that well to keep this ball rolling yeah i think you may be right i mean we're you know when we, when we talk about those numbers in with a starter you've got a guy who pitches seven innings a ball game and so that expected era if there's a run difference or two runs difference you can certainly expect i think the 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 era to converge toward the expected era that makes a lot of sense but with relievers when the guy's coming in for only one inning uh, i i think perhaps you're absolutely right there's there's perhaps less um, less stock in that XERA when it's within a run or so of the real ERA. And, of course, we're always looking for things to like when we're making these decisions. And one thing I really like about uh, Archie Bradley so far is that he's getting the ball over the plate, uh, 62% first pitch strike, which which is going to help him control his walks, although we should say Fernando Rodney's a point higher at 63, and it's not helping him control his walks. Uh, <laughs> thanks a million for helping us out, Nick. We'll talk to you again next week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at the Baseball HQ Radio Podcast. Over to the American League we go, and it's BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. 
Let's start in Houston. We've been talking a lot about the Astros recently on this podcast, and with good reason, mainly pitching injuries and the opportunities and or fool's gold that they've presented to fantasy owners. We led with uh, Dallas Keuchel's DL last week. Now they've lost another starting pitcher from the rotation. Lance McCullers goes to the DL with some discomfort in his lower back. And all of that has led to Francisco Martez, the pitching prospect, getting his first shot in the rotation. He struggled in AAA, Jock, wasn't particularly good in relief in his MLB debut, but he looked pretty sharp against Texas, even got a win. What are we going to make of this as we look to uh, the future of the Houston Astros? Yeah, you know, I watched that game, and it was a really impressive performance, and it it surprised the heck out of me, uh, given the way he looked in his first uh, MLB appearance. Uh, I think he only went three and a three and a two-thirds innings in relief, and he walked a couple batters. He gave up four runs, only struck out two, and he struggled in AAA. So I was not ready for what he did against Texas, and he and he pitched really well. Uh, he went five innings, only gave up three hits and a run, and he struck out seven, and he kept the walks down. Um, he had a chance to break in the mid innings, uh, and and this goes back to what we talked about before. I think we talked about Mar- Marte last uh, week. He has the kind of stuff that uh, is capable of doing this, but he just hasn't shown it that much this year. He's always he's been walking too many people, and sometimes when these guys get to the majors, uh, they, something kicks in. They get better coaching. Uh, I don't know, better lights, better receiving. You know, whatever. But uh, I think he's going to be up and down from here. Um, it, uh, it it it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think also better umpiring. I know a lot of people like to complain about the umps and the fact that they don't call the strike zone as it's uh, written down in the rule book, and I agree with those complaints, by the way. But one thing you could say about uh, the Major League umpiring versus what you might see in AAA is that it's going to be, for the most part, more consistent. That is, if a, if an umpire is giving the pitcher a little bit off the outside corner, everybody's going to get that pitch and it's going to happen inning in and inning out. And in the AAA ranks and the AA ranks, sometimes that strike zone tends to wander around from uh, pitcher to from pitch to pitch, from batter to batter. So uh, I think that's a that's a plus as well. Also, and this may sound weird, but I think the mound might be better. You know, they have they take better care of the grounds in uh, the major leagues than they do in the minors, and those are more consistent as well. Yeah, these are all very good points you're making here, and uh, and. You know, maybe Marte benefited from all of them. Uh, what's going to be interesting now is to see. Uh, I, I mean, I'm looking at the the Houston uh, uh, rotation and the injury list right now on our on our status report. Um, there, there's just no clarity right now in the rotation as far as when these guys are coming back. I mean, they could all be out until the end of the month or or maybe even into July. Um, what's going to What's going to be interesting now is to see uh, what the Astros do, how they handle June. Can they avoid burning their bullpen out, given that they're kind of being forced to go with a bunch of four, five, and six-inning guys at best for this month? Yeah, that part of it's got something to, to be considered as well. Uh, they uh, have been getting good starts from a lot of their starters, and as they lose them, as you said, they go from seven-inning starts to five-inning starts. That starts to wear and tear on the bullpen, so it is something to watch. As Houston's injuries are not restricted to the rotation, though, Jock. Uh, on the position side, they put Josh Reddick on the 10-day DL. He got a concussion, and maybe a little more serious than the usual because they have a seven-day concussion rule as well, but they've opted for the 10 the Astros called up their super prospect, Derek Fisher. I know you covered this in playing time today at the time it happened, but you also ran a playing time tomorrow piece, Jock, about Derek Fisher right before his promotion. One of the hotter Astro prospects and uh, his MLB debut you describe as sensational. 
Let's talk about Derek Fisher and where he fits in. Yeah, you know, Derek Fisher struggled last year with contact uh, at, at, a, at a year that he spent between AA and, and AAA. But uh, he's been pretty good this year, and, and he had a, he had a good spring. Although he didn't he didn't make a lot of contact there either. He hit some home runs and he stole some bases. But all of a sudden in June, um, I think he had a, a, a seven to seven strikeout to walk ratio in just under fifty at bats, and he was hitting three hundred over three hundred. He was he was hitting home runs. He was stealing bases. This guy's a multi-tooled player, and he was terrific in his MLB debut. It was it was interesting. That one of the things that made that game so fascinating was that it wasn't only Marte's uh, rotation debut, but uh, it was Fisher making his first appearance. He hit a home run. He walked twice, and he stole a base, and not stole a base. Uh, he hit a single. Um, I really like Derek Fisher, particularly in this lineup, and I, and I think he's going to play. I think he's going to get a chance to play until he proves he can't right now. I was looking at his minor league uh, stats because I've got some uh, thinking to do this week, and I'll talk to you later about it to maybe choose a prospect for my Tout Wars American League team. I was holding my cash, maybe looking forward to the crossover date, but all of a sudden these prospects start turning up and you really have to take a look. And uh, Fisher, at age 21, and this was only at A-ball and, uh, and the fall league and high A, but 24 homers, 101 RBIs, 34 steals and a 368 on base percentage. I know it's fairly far down there, but even in AAA this year, he had 16 uh, home runs and 13 stolen bases in only uh, 245 at-bats. If this translates even three-quarters of the way to Major League Baseball, he could be a real find. Yeah, I agree. And obviously, we never know when the light's going to come on with some of these guys. But if you look at his June and how he did there, split those minor league stats out, he's improved into June. And I think that's what Houston is trying to take advantage of right here. He's got a whole bunch of upside, and I think he could help an offense that was actually beginning to sputter just a little bit before they called him up. Now, of course, uh, once Reddick gets back, you've got to assume he's going to keep uh, his role, but this Fisher guy could find himself on the uh, pretty good side of a platoon here, and don't you think that uh, uh, Carlos Beltran has got his finger in his collar a bit, and especially Nori Aoki? Yeah, um, Aoki's an interesting situation because Houston signed him as a result of 2016 when they're when they struggled against uh, left-handed pitching and and they finished way down in AL batting average, and it's funny because that's the one thing that Aoki provides is is batting average and contact, and he's done this. He's hit 278 so far. But Houston's offense doesn't need this as much as they did in 2016. They're way up up the charts in in American League batting average. I think they're number one. Uh, they're they're clicking most of the time on all cylinders and when you got a one-trick pony like Aoki and you got a guy who can do a lot of different things like Fisher uh, yeah I think Aoki ought to be concerned and Beltran too he's not he's not hitting for for nearly the batting average he used to and I'm not sure those skills are coming back his power is showing up but he's only hitting about 230 I wouldn't be surprised to see him lose at bats as well and what about Evan Gaddis, uh, another power source who hasn't been particularly powerful? If they were to slide Gaddis out of some playing time to make room for all of these other guys, that could be another pathway to at-bats for Fisher. Yeah, that's right. Evan Gaddis uh, uh, hasn't been hitting for much power at all, and he's a DH, and they can do a lot with that position. Uh, Evan Gaddis so far this year, 417 slugging, which just isn't very Gaddis-like. Although, frankly, uh, if, if, if I had to bet on any of those three three players picking it up I would bet on Gaddis's power showing up uh, at some point uh, he, he's too good at, he's too consistent a power hitter to have this disappear unless it's an injury there's also uh, Jake Marisnik 
who has been okay for the for the Astros this year. But here's a question. The Astros have been playing very well, and they've been very successful this year. They run out to a very big lead. They have an outstanding record. And you have an injury. You bring up this new young kid. Is there any risk that the Astros might look around and go, we don't want to upset the apple cart here. We've got a pretty good thing going on. We'll let this kid come up. He can play for it. Turns out it is a seven-day DL for the concussion on Josh Reddick. Assuming he comes back right away, he'll get his spot back. They're not going to throw Springer down. As you said, it's not a lot of playing time left over for all those other guys. No, I think what you're saying is is viable and it's even possible. I think a lot depends on how the team does, how the offense is clicking, and how well Fisher does. Um, don't forget, they could also be um, potentially um, trying to spotlight Fisher. They may be looking to see what kind of a deal they can push. Uh, maybe they can trade somebody. I mean, they're still looking for pitching. Um, it'll be interesting to see how long they let their current pitching go, um, how long they let their injured pitchers try to rehab in hopes of getting them back healthy. Maybe the Astros try to bash their way offensively through the rest of the season in hopes of getting a healthy pitching staff back uh, at the end of the year. I thought it was an interesting point that they might want to uh, let this Fisher kid uh, hammer away for a week or 10 days and uh, really get people interested in other organizations. And maybe, like you said, if they feel like their their availability in the playoffs is now, they might be willing to sacrifice even a prime talent like Derek Fisher if they thought they were going to get back a frontline starter or maybe two not-quite-frontline starters, something like that. It's an interesting sort of set of, co- of circumstances here. It's going to make for some interesting watching over the next little while. Over in the uh, Oakland Athletics, they've sent Trevor Plouffe to the uh, designated for assignment list. That means that basically he's been sent to the minors. They just don't know where yet. Uh, they wanted to make room to promote uh, star third base prospect Matt Chapman, another big, big name in prospects. So let's talk about that, starting with what did Trevor Plouffe do wrong? Well, Plouffe, Plouffe just hasn't been very good across the board this year. I mean, the one strength that he did have as a, as a as a hitter before this before last year I should say is his power I mean his power metrics are always pretty good they were always a plus um, he's had a couple seasons of 20 plus home runs um, and you could always count on him for a little bit of that but it but it kind of went into the tank last year same thing this year and now his batting average is is off uh, he always hit around 250 260 he's only hit 214 this year and 182 at bats with seven homers uh, just not very good. He's 31 years old, um, and and Oakland is already starting to uh, bring that next wave in. So uh, Plouffe was very easily expendable. Okay, then uh, what about Matt Chapman? Uh, if this is his chance to come up and play regularly, or is this going to be another one of these things where bring him up, show him around, send him back? No, Chapman. Chapman is one of their better prospects, and and not just. Uh, not just offensively either. Uh, he's a he's got a terrific glove, which is uh, something that that Plouffe didn't have. Plouffe was pretty average at third base. Um, Chapman is a potential Gold Glover, and he hits with power and patience. This is a guy who hit 36 home runs between Double A AA and Triple A. He struck out 173 times last year in 514 at bats. He's really cut down on the strikeouts this year. He's only struck out 63 times in 174 at bats this year, and he hasn't sacrificed any of his power and patience. He's got 16 home runs to date. They are going to play Matt Chapman uh, for the rest of the year. But when I do the math here, Jock, just in my head, he's got 170-some uh, at-bats this year versus 514, so that's about one-third, and he's got about one-third the strikeouts. It doesn't look like he's striking out any less at all. 
Yeah, um, no, you're right. Um, it, it's it's mostly uh, recently that the improvement has come. Um, his batting average has certainly improved. Uh, he's hit 259 this year as opposed to 237. Um, they're going to see what he's all about. They're going to see if the home runs will play in Oakland. He certainly appears to be drawing a, a fair number of walks as well. His on-base percentage is 350. Now, this raises an interesting question. Well, before I get to the interesting question, I'll ask you a hopefully as interesting question. What about Ryan Healy? He's been hitting the hell out of the ball. Uh, could he just keep that third base slot, which he was pretty much owning uh, since Trevor Plouffe fell into the wrong side of the manager opinion? No, Healy's problem certainly isn't his bat. It's his glove. He's a terrible defender. I mean, he really can't play play anywhere. Uh, he's he's pretty much going to be the full time DH uh, now with this with with Chapman up. Um, he's obviously he's he's hit for power and he's even kept his average up. But uh, I don't think they want Healy anywhere on that field right now. And that makes sense. He does look pretty bad with the with the leather. I have to say. Okay, now on to the interesting question. Uh, suppose you're sitting in an American League league or even in a mixed league that for some reason you need uh, to be looking at prospects like these. You have enough fab to make a really aggressive bid on either Chapman or on Derek Fisher. Who are you going to bid on? Well, particularly with respect to to prospects when we're comparing them, I'm going to go with the one with the most momentum. Uh, they're both very good prospects. Uh, uh, Fisher is more of a well-rounded prospect in that he has the uh, the speed um, as well as the power. Um, both have contact problems, but but Fisher's the one who has really shown improvement this year, and particularly in June. And the thing that really I think makes me lean toward Fisher is that lineup that he plays in. They're going to have to pitch to Fisher. I'm not so sure that uh, that opposing pitchers are always going to have to have to pitch to Chapman. I like both of them, but at least at this point in time, and in, in terms of uh, what uh, one might do for the next two, three months, I'd go with Fisher. And that's even knowing that Chapman probably has a better chance of sticking with his club uh, uh, for the entire uh, for the entirety of the rest of the season. Well, that was what I was going to ask you. I was going to play devil's advocate and say, yeah, but you could have Chapman for 16 weeks and you could have uh, Fisher for seven or eight days. And that seems to be something, mind you, we're going to find out more, I think, before most leagues have their deadlines on Sunday to decide these moves. And maybe we'll find out more over the weekend. But I think, I think there's going to be a bit of a gamble here if you decide Fisher's the way to go. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, I'm I'm a believer in Fisher. I'm a believer in that in the fact that I think Houston will find a place for him to play if he keeps hitting. Um, Chapman Chapman in his debut uh, just last night, Thursday, he struck out twice, two walks. I actually think that's a good sign. The walks. Um, it'll be interesting to see if he can if he can get going in Oakland. He's going to get all kinds of opportunity. I love Fisher in Houston. I do too, and it just dawns on me too. Uh, when you look at the two ballparks, if you're hoping to get some home runs out of either of them, you gotta like uh, you gotta like the guy playing in Houston more than you like the guy playing in Oakland. Uh, let's move on. Uh, Tampa, boy, oh boy, they lost Matt Andres to a hip injury, and the replacement situation is shaping up as being pretty interesting. They had uh, Jacob Faria come up and looked pretty good. Tom Kephart wrote this all up in Playing Time today. What's the story in Tampa with the rotation, considering the Andres injury? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's. It's hard to tell right now, early at least, uh, um, how long um, Andres is going to be out. But the early reports say August. So he's going to be out a considerable amount of time, at least a month and a half here. It's, they're calling it a stress reaction in his hip. So um, Faria has quite the opportunity here. 
But what can he make of the opportunity, I think, is the question that everybody's really concerned about. Well, interestingly enough, um, he's had uh, basically his he's he's now had a couple of starts and uh, both have been um, PQS Dom performances, as we say at Baseball HQ. He's uh, he's he's struck out a lot of hitters. Uh, let's see uh, his his first start, June 13th. Uh, Went six and a third innings, struck out eight, walked one. He's a real interesting guy in that uh, he's always had the big strikeouts. Uh, he's 23 years old, but he doesn't have huge stuff. It's always been about angle and deception and 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 change up with him. Uh, I'm looking at this right now. This is a guy who who um, struck out 84 hitters in 58 innings in AAA this year, and he's really improved his control. He only walked 22. In contrast, he walked 68 hitters last year in 51 innings. Um, but in his minor league career, he struck out over a batter an inning, and now he's thrown two dominant starts uh, at, uh, in Tampa Bay. Uh, I think he could be more, a little more than a number four starter in that 7B that we projected at Baseball HQ during the offseason. Yeah, I was looking at his stats as well, and I first thing that jumped out at me is that he's got uh, uh, 13 strikeouts in 13 innings in the major leagues. He had 13 strikeouts per nine innings in the minors with a strikeout-to-walk ratio near four, which is getting pretty elite. Of course, we have to discount AAA stats for a guy who's coming into the major leagues, but as you mentioned, in his first two starts, it didn't look like he was dazzled or frightened or um, overwhelmed. He just went out there and threw strikes, and he did pretty well, as you say. Yeah, and let's face it, the way starting pitching is right now with all of the injuries, when you see somebody like that, if, if, if you're trying to get him now, you're probably not going to get him because he's gone. And finally, Jock, uh, in Baltimore, the Orioles slugging first baseman Chris Davis, one of the most reliable power hitters in Major League Baseball over the last few years, is on the DL. He has a strained oblique, which is a bad injury for a power hitter. This seems to open up a path for rookie Trey Mancini, at least while Davis is out. Phil Hertz of BaseballHQ.com wrote this one up in the Playing Time Today space. What's the situation looking like in Baltimore with Chris Davis on the shelf? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's not really clear how serious uh, Davis's injury is. They're saying it's a uh, a grade one strain, which a oblique strain, which isn't too bad. He could return in a couple weeks. Mancini had actually already won more playing time uh, in May. He hit something like 347 that month, and he's hitting over 300 again. But it was all over the place. He was playing at DH, first base, left field. It'll be interesting to see what uh, the Orioles do now because they, uh, essentially they have. Uh, Three DH first baseman in uh, Davis Trumbo and uh, and uh, Mancini. Um, it'll be. I think what they'll probably do is station both Trumbo and Mancini, some combination of DH and and uh, and first base. Uh, it'll be interesting to see who they put in left field now. But uh, I like Mancini. He's been uh, very good. His uh, rookie year. I wrote him up. Uh, I think in a preseason uh, keeper league column as as somebody that you could get on the cheap that, that may not hurt you i think that 298 batting average is a little lofty based on what i'm seeing in his plate skills but the power seems to be legit he had a lot of home runs in the high minors and he's doing it again here in baltimore you mentioned trumbo i would add in hyunsu kim and trey mancini all angling for some of that playing time in dh and left field i think maybe the problem here is none of them is really a terrific outfielder yeah i mean baltimore's not known for their outfield defense uh it's got a lot of hitters uh got a lot of uh, bats that they try to make room for but uh the outfield defense uh could use some help 
One caution I'd throw out about Trey Mancini is that he has a relatively low fly ball rate, around a third of his balls in play, 34 35%, something like that. And his home run per fly ball rate right now is 23%. And I'd have to look into it more to see how many of his fly balls are hard hit. But 23% in general looks like quite a high home run per fly ball rate. Maybe as a cautionary note there, I'm not sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think he's going to he's, he's gonna have some regression. But then again, he also plays in Camden Yards, and Camden Yards can fix a lot of that. That is true. It is a, It plays very well for home run power. I was just looking at Chris Davis's home run for fly ball rate. It's about the same, 25-26%. So maybe uh, because it's Camden Yards, it's not an unusually high home run for fly ball rate. I guess we shall see. Probably Trey Mancini's not available in most leagues, mixed leagues maybe, but uh, in, in only leagues or deep mixed leagues, I can't see it. Uh, Jock, thanks very much for helping us out. Always interesting, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, a columnist at the site, and he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our feature interview, Glenn Colton from Colton and the Wolfman at Sirius XM Radio and Fantasy Alarm, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Two balls and two strikes on it. Here's the pitch on the way, a swing and a belt. Left field, way back, Blue Jays Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's time now for our regular weekly feature interview, and it's a great pleasure to welcome Glenn Colton, a columnist at FantasyAlarm.com and the co-host with Rick Wolf of the Colton and the Wolfman Show on SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio every Tuesday at 10 Eastern. Glenn's also a member of the Fantasy Sports Trade Association Hall of Fame. Holy cow. Glenn, all those credentials, we're almost out of time. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Patrick. I appreciate it. The long list of uh, Baseball HQ uh, accomplishments and all of my fellow Fantasy Alarm uh, folks' accomplishments would way outpace mine. It's a terrific industry, isn't it? I mean, not not only accomplishment, but a whole bunch of really nice people. It really is. It's uh, It's been an honor to be part of this industry now going uh, almost 15 years. Yeah, I mentioned that you're a, a co-host with Rick Wolf of the Colton and the Wolfman Show. You guys are also partners in running a lot of very successful uh, experts leagues, fantasy teams. How'd you guys get started as a partnership? Well, it's it's a funny story, Patrick. Rick and I know each other from college. Uh, you know, back when we used to chisel our notes in stone with hammers and things of that nature. But uh, Rick was is really one of the true pioneers and founders of the fantasy sports business and. Fifteen years ago, in 2002, he was playing in the Labor League, uh, at that time run by John Hunt of USA Today, and it was the preeminent uh, expert league, and he had said to me, look, you know, I, I've not been able to win that league, but if we play together, we can win that league, and I'm like, wow, you know, I get to go play with Ron Chandler and John Hunt and, you know, Irwin and Lenny, I mean, this is great. So we went down uh, to USA Today headquarters in uh, Virginia, um, people looking at me like, who is this guy? Uh, and we had, uh, you know, probably our second best season ever, um, and we just ran away with the Labor AL League. And all of a sudden, we were kind of a thing. And then the next year, we went to the first ever Labor in Arizona, and we repeated our Labor AL championship with uh, 
a big start from Josh Towers on the last day of the season, and from there it became we're a very successful duo and people generally can't get along running fantasy teams, and it took off from there. You did mention that it's difficult sometimes to maintain partnerships because somebody wants to be in charge and somebody else gets mad and stuff like that. How, how have you guys kept it going all this time? Well, I mean, a couple of things. One is we always say uh, no I in team. So we could debate a player, debate a cost, but once we come to a decision, it's our pick or our cut or whatnot. So it's never, oh, if, if you didn't make me draft uh, Jonathan Lucroy, we'd have won. We never do any of that. And the other thing is we have developed our, uh, our smart system and our rules of engagement, which help us sort of stay on track um, it's sort of developed in a funny way. You know, when you're auctioning, especially, you don't have time to chat about whether to go the extra dollar. It's going once, going twice, sold. So um, we have our rules, and whenever we want to break the rules, we say, never, ever leave your wingman. And the whole thing sort of blew up from that, and that's how we got our Top Gun theme for the radio show and how we stick to our knitting, if you will. And, and when we don't stick to our knitting, we pay the price. So we, we're pretty good about sticking to it. You mentioned the smart system. Talk briefly about that. Sure. Uh, you know, it's uh, you guys at, at Baseball HQ came up with a lot of fun acronyms, you know, like the Lima plan and things like that. So we wanted our own acronym, uh, and we came up with the smart system, which was just some basic uh, tenets of uh, things to do when you draft a fantasy baseball team. And we have a version for football now as well. But uh, S is a, a stands for scarcity. The theory being you pay more for a scarce uh, position. Uh, M for management, meaning the league is only for starting the marathon. When you finish your uh, draft, you really have to manage the whole season. Uh, A is for anchor. You really need that starting pitcher who's going to anchor your staff. And Mike Mussino was that guy for us for years and years. Uh, R being reliever, you really need that ace reliever. So you're at a minimum in the middle of the pack in the saves category, which we have violated in one league this year, and I'm sure we'll talk about and uh, T stands for team, and the basic theory there is players on good teams get more wins, more opportunities to score runs, more opportunities to knock in runs, uh, more fastballs with guys on base, and they don't get closers on good teams don't get traded to be middlemen uh, at, on August 1st, which happens to closers on bad teams. Are all your experts league teams in partnership with Rick? Yes. All of the expert league teams I do with uh, with Rick and uh, many of them also with uh, the first lady of fantasy, Stacey Stern, who has joined the team. Um, I do have one home league that I've been in since 1988. Uh, we're in our 30th season. It's gone on so long that my son is an adult and he's in the league now. How does that go? Uh, he's tough. <laughs> he's really good. Uh, and what's sort of funny is, of course, every time I bid on a player, somebody in the league says, oh, he's in the Hall of Fame. He must be good. And there's a, we get a big yuck out of that every time. But, uh, you know, it, the home leagues are, are, are really tough. There are a lot of people who are really good at fantasy baseball who are not necessarily, quote, in the industry. Going back to that 1988, the first time you drafted your, your team, uh, I presume it was an auction. Uh, do you remember the first player you ever bought? Oh, absolutely. Ricky Henderson. <laughs> wow. Uh, I spent uh, a full third of my budget uh, on, on almost a full third of on Ricky Henderson, who was 
you know, far and away, you know, the best fantasy player in the world at the time. Uh, power dominates speed and runs categories all on his own, batting average. Um, that was just the guy to own. And did he return a third of a, a third of your budget in value that year? Uh, he did. Um, he was terrific. But what happened that year is um, my law school roommate, who I had partnered with at the time, his uh, father's a big baseball fan, and told us, "Hey, you know, you ought to take a look at this this Cubs pitcher. I know he he was six and fourteen last year, but uh, he's really something special." So on the first waiver pick we ever made, it was a unknown player named Greg Maddox. Wow, nice pickup. Uh, also, just getting Ricky Henderson in and of itself is a pretty shrewd play. Uh, 93 stolen bases that year pretty much wins you the category, right? That's exactly right. He was terrific. And then Ed Maddox uh, and a uh, few other pieces. I remember we had Rock Reigns on that team as well. Uh, that team won a title, so it started my career in fantasy baseball, which is now in its 30th season. You know, once upon a time, uh, Glenn, I, I embarked upon a project to go through the, the Major League seasons since the free agent era, which I think is 1976 and forward. And what I wanted to do is go through and value every player who played from then till now and find the best 10 fantasy baseball seasons ever in the free agent era. And it kind of got bogged down because it's so difficult to value players in different years because of course the, the categories vary in terms of totals so if you're doing perf the percentage value method and uh, it's even harder if you're talking about standings gain so it becomes very hard to manage but boy oh boy when I think of just off the top of my head the greatest fantasy seasons ever in the free agent era a lot of them would probably belong to Ricky Henderson especially those years when he was stealing 100 bases and hitting home runs. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. The, the, the two names that always come to mind for me, uh, and I've never undertaken the research, but just in my head, are Ricky Henderson and the prime Barry Bonds years where his on-base percentage was, you know, 450, 460, uh, and he was hitting 50 to 60 home runs and stealing bases. And Henderson, uh, you know, his batting averages in some years were not all you'd hope for in the 260s sometimes, usually higher than that, but boy, his on-base percentages were always pretty solid. Oh, his eye was unbelievable, considering that nobody wanted to put him on base because he'd be standing on third base, and yet he still walked um, and still you know, made the pitcher really work. He was a character, but just a tremendous player. And, and you know, fantasy baseball is supposed to be fun. That was a fun guy to own. You were always excited when Ricky came to the plate if you were either a fan of his team or you had him on your fantasy team. Led the league in walks uh, four times. Uh, Ricky Henderson was a terrific player. Uh, moving on, uh, how are your other experts leagues teams doing besides, uh, well, let's talk about Tout Wars first. Being a good podcast host, I generously stepped aside so you and Rick could go past me in the Tout AL standings, but unfortunately for you, fortunately for me, I moved back in front of you this week. How are all your fantasy teams doing? Well, you know, the Tout Wars team uh, is not doing very well so far. We we went away from the smart system. We tried something completely different uh, this year. We didn't get an anchor reliever, and we're in last in, in saves, which is really costing us. Um, but that team has a lot of talent, and I'm not ready to give up. This is still a team with Abreu, Pedroia, Betts, Cano, uh, you know, Lucroy, Moustakis. So we're, uh, you know, you Darvish, we're not, we're not giving up there at all. Uh, we are currently in first place in the Labor AL, uh, NL League, um, Labor AL team is, is hurting a little bit because of uh, the loss of Mike Trout. Uh, we're uh, 
And we're in contention in, I'd say, probably seven of the nine leagues we're in. Well, that's really good. And I'm curious, I'm going to be talking a little later on in the show in my master notes about my 10-week assessment of my Tout American League team, and, and it's struggling too. I deliberately don't get relievers. That's just a strategic way of approaching it. But I'm with you, you know. I look at my team, and I look at projecting the league out, and I, I don't think my team is this bad, and I know we all say that, but how do you know when you're looking at your team whether or not to pack it in? Well, there's two different ways. There's two different things you have to do. First, you have to look at the standings, right? That's really critical because you may have, uh, you know, I have 40, Rick and I have 46 points, and Podhorser has 99, so you think, oh, my goodness, you know, 50-some-odd points. What chance do we have? But then you go and you take a look and you say, hmm, there's still 60% of the season left, and 30 runs is five points, and, you know, 15 homers is five points, and, you know, uh, six steals is seven points. And you all of a sudden realize, hmm, you're not really that far out of it if you have a team that can jump back up. And then you, then I go back and say, why is this team underperforming? And I look at it and I say, okay, Jose Abreu started poorly. He's now bounced back. Pedroia has been on the DL. Cano's been on the DL. Betts missed a whole week. Lucroy is finally warming up. And you say, all right, there's a lot of upward mobility here. I'm not ready to pack it in. On the other hand, if you have uh, Mike Trout and Noah Syndergaard, for example, as I have on one mixed league team, that's $80 that's wasted. You're done. <laughs> and then you really that's how you look at it. Yeah, I think so too. And uh, the the primary thing you have to do, especially in, uh, well, exclusively in uh, roto-style category-based leagues, is you do have to look at those uh, those categories and say, this is one that I'm I'm in the bottom of a clump, but I could certainly jump up with a little bit of extra performance. And I'm with you on this idea that the league is still 60% yet to play because it means to me I've got 16 weeks to make up. If I've got 16 weeks to make up 20 home runs, that's only one home run a week more than whoever it is I'm chasing. That's not out of the question when I look at the guys that are on my roster. Similarly with wins and strikeouts, all these kind of things, if you break it down to how much do I have to beat this guy per week, sometimes it's very a very minor marginal amount. I completely agree with you. And if you're in a redraft league like Tout Wars is, for example, and Labor is, then I think you owe it to um, your league mates to play it out play it out hard. And if you're in a, quote, expert or industry league that's watched very carefully, like Tout Wars or Labor, we're not going to pack it in. We don't even pack it in when we get dragged into football, which is going to start, you know, this week with the FSTA football experts draft. We're going to play it out. We're going to play it out hard because it's important to the integrity of the league. And also, you're playing for fun. So just the idea of, okay, we're in last. We're not going to finish in last if, <laughs> because we didn't try. That's not happening. Plus, it's a better story if you were in last and finished third or something like that. Then you can say, oh, yeah, I didn't win, but I made up nine spots in 16 weeks. That's nothing. Not That's not nothing. That's certainly true. And the other thing, Patrick, is some of the leagues have penalties for uh, finishing poorly. So in Tout Wars, if you finish under 60 points in the standing, you lose fab money in the next year. Uh, that's never happened to us before. We've never lost fab money. We've always been 60 or more. Uh, but we have 46 right now, and we are going to do everything in our power, not only to tr still try to go worst to first, but at least get over 60 points and uh, start fresh next year. 
And before we move on, you did mention fantasy football is kind of looming in the uh, in the near distance. Uh, you you mentioned the FSTA football draft. Uh, who's the number one pick in the in that draft if you get it? Well, unfortunately, we have the 14th pick out of 14. But if I had the first pick, I would take Ezekiel Elliott. I know there's arguments for uh, for David Johnson and, and Le'Veon Bell, but uh. I'm an unabashed Cowboys fan, and, and Zeke is just a special, special player who did not reach his ceiling last year because he wasn't as involved in the passing game as he will be this year. Uh, I'll tell you right now, the number one player in fantasy when the season ends is going to be Ezekiel Elliott. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Glenn Colton from Colton and the Wolfman and FantasyAlarm.com. And earlier this week, Glenn, in your regular The Week That Was column at Fantasy Alarm, you admitted that you started the year quite high on Baltimore starter Kevin Gausman, and he has been downright awful in your words. What do you think went wrong with Kevin Gausman, and how likely is he to recover? You know, it's still somewhat of a mystery to me, Patrick. Uh, You know, they messed with Gausman so badly and so just, incompetently in the beginning of his career, uh, minors to majors, bullpen to starting rotation. But I really thought that now he had a full year in the rotation, there's going to be a second full year in the rotation that he would uh, rise up. I think he's still throwing 95, so it doesn't really look like an injury. But I think there's a triple whammy going on here. First, he's walking way too many hitters. His walk rate's gone from, uh, I think it was like two point three to 4.4 per nine this year. Um, And at the same time, his strike swing strike rate, hard contact rate are going in the wrong direction. So that means he's getting hit harder and there's more guys on base. That's a bad combination. And you had the third factor that he's been unlucky with a 363 Babbitt. You know, typically you have about a 300 uh, midline for that. All of that has combined to be a disastrous season. At the end of the day, I'm not a pitching coach. But it looks to me like he's relying too heavily on the fastball, and that's why he's getting hit so much harder. And what likelihood that he turns it around and becomes any kind of uh, useful asset? Well, look, I mean, when you have a track record of production and you have the ability to throw as hard as he does, I think it's certainly possible. But pitching in Baltimore and then you go on the road to New York, Boston, Toronto – you don't have the kind of margin for error you have in San Diego or in Seattle. So until he shows a couple of good outings, I don't think he can be in your lineup. So if you have the ability to reserve him, that's fine. If in a keeper league, I still stash him on my reserve. But a league where you either have to play him or cut him, you know, give him a watch and send him on his way. <laughs> the, 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 the gold watch treatment. treatment. You, you also, also called Yankees, Yankees first baseman Chris Carter a sneaky value. What's, What's your, your reasoning there? there? Well, it's it's not so much about the value of Carter as it is the lack of value uh, I'm seeing in Greg Bird. And after I wrote that, Greg Bird was actually pulled from his rehab assignment. But but Greg Bird hit 100 in the major leagues this year before uh, going into DL and being sent down. And he's hitting something on the order of about 140 in the minor leagues. And this is a guy who missed all of 2016 with an injury. In 2015, even when he had his two good months, he was striking out all the time. So I don't think there's a ready-made answer right now at first base. And Chris Carter, you know, has been showing signs of life. In fact, he ended up, this is being taped on a Friday, he homered on Thursday night. Um, His on-base percentage is actually pretty good over the last couple of weeks, uh, up around 330. 
And I just think on a team that scores a lot of runs, where he's a streaky hitter, you can get real value for, for a guy others are basically thrown away. You, you said, said you're also pretty high on Colorado, Colorado starting, starting pitcher Jeff Hoffman. Hoffman. Why, Why the love for a rookie, rookie pitcher in Coors? Well, you know, this is another guy who, who, who throws gas. So that's, you know, always a way to be more effective, especially when you have to pitch in Colorado where the breaking stuff is not as, um, as effective. But you've got a guy here who's got, before last night, 32 Ks in his four starts. Uh, only gave up one run. wasn't great last night in Coors, but he only gave up one run in five innings. So you can't really criticize him, you know, for that. And you're looking at a guy who's got a whip of .74 on the year. He's not letting guys on base, getting swings and misses at a terrific rate for a starting pitcher at 13.5%. All of that adds up for me, but I'll tell you, I was sitting in the stands at spring training in Goodyear when he was pitching against uh, Cleveland, and there's some good you know, hitters in that lineup. Uh, Edwin Encarnacion, a right-handed hitter, and uh, you, know, you had Jose Ramirez and Carlos Santana. There were some really good hitters, and he was making them look bad with some truly nasty fastballs and sliders. And um, I can see why he's going to be good, and I'm buying, and I'm not even afraid to start him in cores. Often the most interested owners in guys like Hoffman, uh, young rookie pitchers who start off with a splash, they're dynasty keeper league owners. But how concerned should they be about a Tommy John survivor like Hoffman, especially considering how many sliders he throws? You know, that's one of those things that's really hard to know. Uh, I usually defer all those questions to our good friend Stefania Bellady, SPN, who knows far more about this than, than anyone. But I will say that I have not seen, you know, studies that really tell me okay, this is how long you get for Tommy John. This is the type of pitch that's worse. Uh, it used to be that the slider was the worst. Then now they're saying fastballs might actually be worse. I just think it's really hard to know. And when I can't really see a good correlation for something, then I try to look for other indicia that I know are more reliable. So I'm not shying away from Jeff Hoffman in a keeper league until somebody shows me that he's likely to suffer again because that's what happens to TJ surgery uh, comeback guys. You mentioned Nick Castellanos, the Detroit third baseman, last week as a buying opportunity, and again this week. What does a player do to merit two straight mentions in your column? Well, you know, there's a couple of things here about Castellanos, Patrick. First of all, he people forget he's only 25, and there's a huge recency bias in uh, player analysis. He's only 25, which means that this is around the time a lot of players first come up to the big leagues, and he's already got 1,600 at-bats in the big leagues. So it is our own rules of engagement at, you know, for, for Colton the Wolfman, for Fantasy Alarm, say the players who are 25, 26 and have already had so many at-bats are prime jump-up candidates. And then I look at Castellanos and I say, his hard contact percentage, 49.1% of the balls as of yesterday were hard contact. That's more than Aaron Judge more than Paul Goldschmidt, and the average is more around 30, so he is absolutely tarring the ball. In fact, it's 60% hard contact over the last two weeks, and yet his batting average in balls in play is 30 points below his career average. That just means he's been dramatically unlucky, and there is going to be an upswing, and that upswing has started. 
Yeah, I'm curious about those kind of things because uh, the, we're talking about relatively small sample sizes, even at this stage of the season. And uh, uh, I like Nick Castellanos a lot too. I thought you made a good point in your June 6th column about the cost of having a guy like Billy Hamilton or Ryan Schimpf on your fantasy team because they are what you call one category wonders. Explain what you mean about the cost of those kind of players. Yeah, I mean, you take a guy like Billy Hamilton, sort of the classic example of that. We were talking earlier, you know, in the show about Ricky Henderson, who would steal 90 bases, but he'd give you 20 home runs, and he'd hit 300, probably knock in 60 runs, and give you across-the-board production. Whereas Billy Hamilton last year, three homers and 17 RBIs. So if you think about we're about, what, you know, 10, 11 weeks into the season now, and your team, for example, has got uh, averaging about 10 home runs a week. Billy Hamilton's giving you one home run every eight weeks. That's devastating to that category. So he devastates you in home runs, and he devastates you in RBIs, that, and doesn't help you in batting average. That means you have so many holes to fill in order to build up your power numbers, which means you can't even draft more speed which means if something happens to Billy Hamilton, you're really in trouble. So I try to stay away from the one-category wonders. They just do so much more unseen damage than they are worth. On the other hand, if you pair him with a guy like Ryan Schimpf, then you've got a one-category home run power type guy, uh, maybe some RBIs, uh, a one-category stolen base guy with uh, some runs potential. Then all you have to worry about is, uh, is the batting average angle. Well, I think that's true, but you then have exposed yourself to dramatic injury risk. Because if either one of those guys gets hurt or gets sent down, in the case of Schimpf, you're really hurting. It just increases your risk level uh, dramatically. Where a Billy Hamilton, um, a D. Gordon, in my mind, become much more valuable is in August or late July, where you can see very clearly how many points you would get in stolen bases, and you can say, okay, I've got a lead in homers and RBIs, and I'm hurting in stolen bases. Now I can make the move. So comes that time of the year, I'm not as averse to those players, but at the beginning of the year, given how much they cost and how little they produce across the board, I'm staying away. At FantasyAlarm.com, Glenn, uh, one of your colleagues is Howard Bender, the Roto Buzz guy. He had a fairly pointed column recently about the quality of people who call themselves fantasy expert in our business, and I don't necessarily want to go into who he was talking about. Uh, people can find that out for themselves. But was there any backlash or response to it, and what's your overall opinion about the piece? Well, I haven't seen any backlash or response to it, and I won't, of course, mention who uh, Howard is writing about either. Those who want to see it, fantasyalarm.com. Other than that, we'll just talk generically. But for me, um, I think Howard makes two really excellent points. Uh, and if he's listening, Howard, see, I do say nice things about you. Um, Howard and I are, you always have some fun on the air. Um, but he says two things. You know, who can you trust when you're doing a trade, whether it be in an expert league uh, or an industry league or not? People out there who offer you bad trades once you know that, you just shouldn't deal with them. There are, uh, there's one member of our uh, uh, Tout Wars League that I'm just not going to deal with. It's just not worth it. The offers you get are uh, so foolish. So the lesson that Howard is trying to teach you, if you deal fairly with people, they'll deal with you, and you're more likely to get good deals. Doug Dennis is a terrific guy from HQ to, to do baseball deals with in fantasy leagues. Chris List is another one, Steve Gardner. So there are people you know 
you can trust. If they make you an offer, it's fair. And the other thing I would say is, you know, make fair offers because then you'll get that reputation of someone who's good to deal with. And I think that what Howard was basically writing about was uh, this individual made an offer of four middling to not so, and even middling players uh, for two stars. And nobody who plays a lot of fantasy baseball, whether an expert or otherwise, would do that deal. Yeah, sometimes it can be just insulting to think that the guy thinks that you would even think about this kind of a deal. And from that point of view, I see it. I'm more curious, though, about this idea that Howard mentioned that basically to become a fantasy baseball expert, you hang out a piece of paper on your door that says fantasy baseball expert. And uh, I wonder, I think that's endemic throughout media. We have political analysts who don't seem to know very much about politics or are are biased in some sense. We see a lot of uh, very uh, questionable behavior in the financial press and media. How do we know when we're looking at an expert online? Now we look at a Glenn Colton, we look at a Baseball HQ columnist. How do we know, and how how can we trust that what we're reading is the is the result and work of somebody who actually knows what he's talking about? Well, I mean, for me, there's a couple of things. Um, one, I always write: don't draft this player because I tell you to. Draft this player or pay this price because you agree with why I'm telling you to do it. So you, it's incumbent upon the reader to do a little bit of work and say, I'm going to test this hypothesis. And then when you start reading people and you test the hypothesis, you know, you start to gain trust. I mean, you guys at HQ do great work, and some of the maxims that you have, you know, like once you uh, show a skill, you know, you own it, um, that's proven out over time. So I can trust that. Um, things of that nature. So really test why people are saying it. And the other thing I would say is, uh, two other things. I think winning industry leagues is a real indicator because there's no slouch in those leagues. There's no real bargains in those leagues. So if you manage to put some wins on your resume, I think that's a huge factor in your, in, in your cap, a huge feather in your cap. It's not be all. And the other thing is, look at what the other folks in the industry are saying. Um, you know, somebody who's universally respected, like a Ron Chandler uh, in baseball, uh, a Matthew Berry in, in, in football, if the experts look to that expert, that's a pretty good indicator. It is. Uh, I think a lot of the problem sometimes stems in, in so-called expert commentary, not just in baseball, but in all those other areas I mentioned, is that a large part of it becomes who's the best showman. You know, who who puts on the best show, who's the most entertaining. Uh, that's particularly true, I think, when we listen to sports talk radio, where the emphasis is not on analysis or thinking or even common sense. It's on who yells the loudest and who can make his point the most uh, vividly. And I think, uh, yeah, you. I think in, at the end of the day, I think you're correct in that it's incumbent upon the reader to be a little bit critical and to decide whether what they're getting is the is the goods or not. Uh, let's move on to Twitter. Uh, a week or so ago, you tweeted that owners should target Mike Moustakis of Kansas City. He's on your team in Taudel, uh, you mentioned, in part because he'll probably be in a different uniform on August 1st. So my question, Glenn, how aggressively should an owner bet on the come this way? Like, what if Moustakis isn't dealt? Well, I think that the... the thing behind Moustakis is he's a good player who's on an upswing now who has the prospect of becoming even better if he finds himself in a better situation. So if you target him aggressively and he stays in Kansas City, well, geez, he's got 10 homers and a 
1,000 OPS over the last 30 days or so, so you're not getting hurt. But if he gets into a team that actually scores a lot of runs, going to have more opportunity for him to score and to knock in runs, and some of his fly balls that die in Kansas City will become home runs. I'm making this up in Baltimore or, or, or New York or Boston. Um, oh, boy, the value is, is, is truly there. You responded to one of those queries uh, that we get, uh, should I do this trade? And you said you really like the Yankees' Luis Severino. Uh, of course, you're not alone in that, but offer your explanation. Sure. Well, like we said earlier, uh, the smart system that Rick Wolf and I use, the T stands for team, and the Yankees, uh, whether people like it or not, are a very good team, which means a lot of opportunities for Severino to get wins. Um, you know, this is a guy who throws real gas and I don't mean just, you know, 93, 94. He's averaging 97, and that's, that's pretty filthy stuff. And you look at the sub-indicators, he's got a ground ball rate of 55. That means he's, when he's pitching in Yankee Stadium, Baltimore, Toronto, he's keeping the ball on the ground, which limits the home run problems. He's got a huge swinging strike percentage, and he's getting, for a young pitcher, he's still getting ahead of hitters, 63% on a first-pitch strike. So everything is coming together for Severino. And the Yankees... Once Chapman comes back this weekend, they'll be back to having a deep open, which means that they don't have to push this kid too hard deep into games, which will preserve him for later in the year. He's been a $20 pitcher or so uh, this season to date, and boy, I bet not many people paid anywhere near $20 for him in their auctions. Uh, you also issued a sell-high alert on Detroit starter Jordan Zimmerman. Again, you're not alone, but uh, why this sell-high alert? You know, there's a few things about this. Jordan Zimmerman, Patrick. I always liked him, um, but he went from pitching in the National League to the American League, and, and obviously that is much harder to do. You're not facing pitchers; uh, you're facing designated hitters. That's a big difference. Um, and also, he got that big contract after his best season in 2014. And if you take a look at what he did in 2014 versus what he's doing now, he's lost two miles an hour on on his fastball, which is a very big deal. His swing strike percentage has gone down from 2014 to now, from 10-3 to 8-2. And his ground ball rate has gone down from, uh, I think, over 40 to just 34. So more balls in the air, fewer strikeouts, less velocity, and better hitters. That is not a great combination. And so you figure he's pitching reasonably well right now. Maybe you try to cash in your chips while you're uh, ahead of the house. Uh, in your recommendation of Aaron Hicks of the Yankees, you cited one of your rules of engagement having to do with uh, player age and player experience as reflected in at-bats. Explain that rule of engagement. Sure. I mean, again, this is the, 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 you know, the recency bias. And you're seeing this rule of engagement as a guy's 25, 26 years old, typically in his, those players in their first or second year in the majors, but the guys who come up when they're much younger, one, are very talented because they made the league, the league so young, and two, they've got this wealth of experience, a thousand at-bats already in the big leagues by the time others are just getting there first. So that's a time when these talented players jump up in value, and we are seeing that all over baseball this year. It's not only Aaron Hicks who's doing that, but Avisael Garcia is a classic example of that. Even Starlin Castro, who is 27 years old and has uh, something like 1,200 hits already in the major leagues or something like that, is still having a career year because it's a jump-up uh, time for players at that age who are, you know, what they call, I guess, um, post-hype sleepers. Uh, people use that phrase. Young players, they make the league, league very young, and then they get used to the league, 
people forget about them and boom, they explode. And that's Aaron Hicks. A couple of years ago, I did a research study for BaseballHQ.com that came to much the same conclusion, uh, but what I found was 800 plate appearances was the threshold that you really wanted to start looking at a guy uh, who came into the league fairly young. Of course, if he reaches 800 plate appearances when he's 31, not so much. Uh, as well as Hicks is performing, he's playing in Jacoby Ellsbury's spot in the Yankee outfield, and Ellsbury was actually playing pretty well when he suffered that concussion that's still keeping him out, and I know there's uh, long-term questions here, but Ellsbury has the big contract, he has the seniority, and there's that unwritten rule that a player gets his role back if he was on the DL when he comes back from the DL. All of those factors considered, what do you think happens to Hicks playing time if and when Ellsbury returns to the roster? Uh, I think Ellsbury will be back, and I think Ellsbury, you're right, Patrick, has been having a nice year. Um, But, look, the Yankees have enough space for all four of those guys done right. Um, Aaron Judge has never obviously played a full season in the major league, so it's going to give them the opportunity to sit him down or DH him once in a while. Brett Gardner has a very long history of um, you know, getting tired and wearing down toward the end of the year. Um, Hicks obviously has not played a full season starting every day. Uh, Matt Holliday is a guy who's 37 years old, and you want to give him some time off. Uh, as well. So I think there's going to be plenty of opportunity for all of those guys to play play five days a week. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Glenn Colton from FantasyAlarm.com, Series XM Fantasy Sports Radio. And uh, Glenn, in Tout Wars AL, which we've been talking about, the league we're both in, uh, you have been quite aggressive in your fab bidding. You've picked up 21 free agents. I think you're over $500 spent so far, 569 570 of the 35 bids year-to-date over $30 in this league, you have five of them. Uh, some owners like to hang on to their dollars hoping for the big score, a league crossover like Jonathan Lucroy last year or a new closer perhaps coming out of nowhere. As we speak, you've spent more than half your fab on your pickups, and I wonder, is this your usual philosophy? How aggressive are you typically in spending your fab? You know, I think it's one or the other, Patrick. You either fire out and spend the money if you see opportunity or if your team is hurting and you need to, or you hold back. What you don't want to be is that person with, uh, you know, fourth most money on July 31st and you have resisted good players and all of a sudden don't have the money to go over the top on the Lucroy who crosses over or the, you know, um, you know, Garrett Cole or somebody who may come to the American League this year, something like that. Um, for us... We had so many injuries at the beginning of the year um, with our big-time players, Cano, Betts, uh, Lucroy not hitting, Mustaka starting slow, Abreu starting slow, uh, that we felt we needed to get some juice into the lineup earlier. And then we got unlucky a little bit, I think. Not that Almonte is such a great player, but uh, he got hurt right away. And on the other hand, Jorge Bonifacio has turned out to be uh, a really, really good everyday player pickup. And at the end of the day, my view is if you spend on three or four players in FAB and an AL only, and one of them turns out to be a valuable everyday player, it's been worth it. 
We always talk about uh, it's important to evaluate your process rather than your outcomes because these are short-term plays. You mentioned you spent 100 bucks on Abraham Almonte. You get him on your roster and boom, he's hurt virtually immediately. Uh, you spent 52 on Yandy Diaz, I think, in mid-May, probably not the most uh, outstanding fab acquisition in history. But these fab acquisitions are really in the moment, and they're very contextual. So how does a fantasy owner evaluate the process that he used to choose these particular players and to accurately value how much to bid. Well, I think one of the things that you really have to be careful of, and and that's the Andy Diaz mistake that we made, frankly, is we were hurting for a corner infielder, and there was just absolutely nobody there. And Dan Vogelbach got sent down, never really produced. We thought, hey, that $1 might actually be a good bid. It turns out it was just a wasted dollar. Uh, And we really needed a corner. So we saw Andy Diaz, we saw a guy who you know, hit 325 at AAA, you know, the year before, had some talent, was on a good team, and we jumped. And I would say that early in the season, uh, you should go for talent, not necessarily position, and that's a mistake we made. There haven't been too many trades in this league uh, so far. You made a couple of them, but that was before the season even started. Uh, you traded Tampa catcher Wilson Ramos. He was hurt at the time. You got Jacoby Jones and Joe Kelly. Then you traded Ryan Dull, who had some buzz about being a possible closer to get some fab money. Did these trades work for you? Yeah, I mean, the Ryan Dull trade certainly worked because we were going to cut him anyway um, because we had a glut of uh, solid 7th and 8th inning relievers, so we just got some fab money, which you pointed out is going to prove valuable to us as we've been spending. Um, and, you know, the Wilson-Ramos trade is still yet to be determined. I mean, Jacoby Jones has been terrible. There's no question about that, but he's a guy who plays third base and outfield, so we thought there was some value in the flexibility. And we really like Joe Kelly, who's throwing 100 miles an hour and, you know, thought he could be a pretty good vulture guy, and he's, he's worked out. So if Wilson Ramos has three good months at catcher, this will be a bad trade for us. If the injuries linger or he doesn't really adjust back to, uh, you know, his form until 2018, then it'll turn out to be a good trade. Do you and Rick consider yourselves active traders in these experts leagues? Uh, you know, we go in cycles, honestly. Um, and sometimes... We're very active and sometimes not. But what we will always do is we will almost always counter. If you send us an offer, if it's not acceptable right there, we will not do the, oh, no, that doesn't work for us. We'll look for a way that we can counter in a deal that helps us and and would help you as well. So we end up getting a lot of deals done that way. And the other thing we do very often is the low-level deal, like the Ryan Dull deal. If you're going to cut the player anyway... Put him out on the market. Maybe someone will give you something. And I think it was Nando DeFino who gave us $10 in fab, which, okay, maybe it won't matter at the end of the year, but we got something for nothing, and those are always good deals. I think the uh, the value of those second-level second players being dealt is underestimated. People are always looking to hit that, uh, you give me Paul Goldschmidt, I'll give you Clayton Kershaw-type deals, which very rarely happen because, frankly, there's a, there's a behavioral economics principle that says we tend to want to keep the things we have rather than risk getting something new in exchange. And that's true of not just fantasy baseball, but all kinds of economic uh, commercial dealings. So... 
I think it's easier to trade those guys who are down your roster, your your middle infielder rather than your star second baseman, your corner infielder rather than your star first baseman, your fourth outfielder rather than your best one. Those kind of guys are easier to move. I think that's absolutely true um, until you get later in the year when people see their um, statistics and they realize, oh boy, you know, I certainly need uh, another 100 strikeouts. And then they will trade Paul Goldschmidt for Col- Clayton Kershaw. And and so they should. As you get later in the season, as you mentioned, you have a much better understanding of what you need, whatever what other people need, how you can affect the race overall by trading tactically, all these kind of things. At this point in the season, though, I think it's still a little early to be thinking about that. Since those opening day deals, I noticed you haven't made a trade in this league. I was talking with Mike Gianella not long ago on Baseball HQ Radio. He said he thinks owners in experts leagues are often too reluctant to make deals because they worry about being perceived as having lost a trade. You've been in several experts leagues over many years. What has your experience been in that regard? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm a big fan of Mike's, and I read his work, and it's an honor to play with him. I just don't agree with him on that point. Uh, We've been doing this for 15 years, and I think the experts are actually very actively looking to make the deal to show, either to show how smart they are, getting the guy right before he uh, explodes, if you will, or um, are often testing theories. Um, they're working on their next piece. They're working on the next year's, uh, you know, preseason guide, and they make moves to test theories, uh, just as they start new uh, strategies for drafting. So I think actually there's a fair number of uh, uh, of trades and, and willingness to make deals. Um, I think what happens is that guys like uh, you know Rick and me or Steve Gardner or um, you know folks like that or Greg Ambrosius, they're in ten leagues. And sometimes it's just hard to focus on all the leagues and do the work necessary to get a fair trade. I think that's an excellent point, and it's also true of people who even play in home leagues, plus Yahoo leagues, plus ESPN leagues. After a while, the natural tendency is to focus in on the teams that you have that are doing well, and in leagues where you're not doing so well, the other owners might look at you and go, this guy never makes a deal. And the fact is, you would make a deal, it's just that you're not in a league where the investment of time and resources pays off in in having a chance of winning the league. Uh, You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Glenn Colton, and Glenn, before we get back to players and talking about that kind of thing, you're also a, an attorney who has worked extensively with the fantasy sports industry to address some of its possible issues. Most recently, probably most notably, the whole schmozzle with daily fantasy and the gambling issue and all that kind of thing. That one seems to have died down, but what other issues might be looming for the fantasy sports industry as you see it? Well, I'm not so sure it's, it's actually died down, Patrick, but uh, to be lawyerly, which is, of course, my full-time profession, the views expressed are those of, of only me and not of uh, my clients or my firm. Uh, but with that being said, I think that the gambling issue is still a real issue, not because fantasy sports is gambling. That's, in my view, pure nonsense. Fantasy sports is, is a skill game. You have to have a tremendous amount of skill to win at fantasy, whether it's year-long, month-long, or daily. Uh, but I think the misperception is still a big issue. But the biggest, biggest risk facing the fantasy sports industry right now is people being cavalier. Uh, the problems of, uh, of the last couple of years have been because people were cavalier. They weren't careful about the way in which they ran their businesses. Uh, not everyone, of course, just a few. Uh, and weren't careful about following really basic best business and best legal practices. And if 
all the members of the industry do that, this industry will continue to thrive as it should because just so many people love to play fantasy sports. Latest count, it must be something like 60 million people uh, in North America who enjoy fantasy sports. Let's hope that continues. And I don't know how much you know about this, but uh, the big news in daily fantasy was the proposed merger between the two big players in the field, DraftKings and FanDuel. Has that moved forward? I don't follow it that closely. I imagine you follow it more closely than I do. Uh, there might be antitrust implications, those kind of things. What's the status of that? You know, honestly, Patrick, I don't really know. Um, so I don't want to guess uh, on that, obviously. Um, there have been reports of, you know, potential antitrust issues. I uh, know a lot of folks at both companies, and, and I, I wish them well, and I hope they're successful, and I hope competitors come up uh, to challenge them and give consumers uh, even more options and more ways to play and enjoy. Yeah, that would be good. Uh, I wonder about the barriers to entry. If you if you and I decide, you know what would be fun is to have a really well-run, interesting daily fantasy uh, option for baseball, and we have good ideas. There's still, it's costly to get it started, and you have uh, the potential for losses in, in, in the early going while you ramp up your audience and stuff like that. How difficult is it to get started with a business like this compared to other businesses? No, I think it, it is difficult to especially because of all of the new regulations and the state-by-state -state issues that have come up, there is a substantial cost to getting into uh, the daily fantasy industry, but it can be done. And there are some big players out there and some significant industry veterans out there who either are working on that or have uh, started their uh, plans toward that. So I would not be surprised to see new entrants come in to the business and do so successfully over the next few years. I imagine, I imagine there are going, going to be some pretty deep-pocketed deep uh, uh, entities, entities looking, looking at this possibility, and it, 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 it is something to look forward to. to as, as you said, the more, the more competitors there are on the field, the likelier are that there's going to be good offerings. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Glenn Colton from FantasyAlarm.com and the Colton and the Wolfman Show on Sirius XM. And Glenn, during the season, I ask our experts to talk about players who get the old thumbs up or thumbs down for the balance of the year. Any rationale works for me. Let's start with your thumbs up guys these are players you think should interest our listeners for the balance of the season whether as fab acquisitions or trade acquisitions let's start in the american league with a hitter who gets the glenn colton thumbs up well uh, you know we've talked about him a lot already so my my choice was uh, nick castellanos and his 49 percent uh, hard hit rate and his uh, you know substantial experience at a very young age but since we already talked about him i will give you one other name and that's mike zunino who, you know, had just an awful start to the beginning of the year, but has come back just like he did last year from the minors, hitting the baseball. Uh, this is a guy who's got five homers, 19 ribbies, and a 413 OBP with a, almost 1,200 OPS in the last two weeks. You're getting that at a catcher? That's the stuff that wins leagues. So I'll go with, uh, with Mike Zunino as a new name for us that we haven't discussed in the cast today. Massive power on Mike Zanino and his batting average, which uh, has always been a, something of an Achilles heel. He's been sub-Mendoza in past years, uh, 241 this year so far, which is not great, but certainly if you're going to get all those home runs, the power makes him very look very interesting at 241. How about in the National League, who's a hitter, you get the thumbs up? For me, it's Javier Baez. I mean, 
who am I to question Joe Madden, who was genius and they won the World Series? But I have to think that a guy with this level of talent is going to get more and more time over the course of the season. And in just 175 at-bats, he's looking at 10 homers and almost 30 ribbies so far. Uh, if he gets close to full-time play in the second half, look out. He's also been unlucky with a 280 BABIP on, uh, against a 314 career mark. And his, he's not a guy who's going to walk a lot, but his walks are up uh, almost 40% over last year. And that's going to mean the guys have to pitch to him. And when you watch Javier Baez hit, he can hit the ball out from anywhere at any time, uh, and he can run. So this is a guy with tremendous talent who's been around a couple of years, plays basically every position, but pitcher and catcher, uh, he's my thumbs up. Yeah, BaseballHQ.com is not projecting that he's going to get full-time at-bats, but listen to this. In less than 300 for the balance of the season, assuming the same sort of part-time play, 11 homers to come, a 260 batting average with 43 RBIs and 7 bags. That's a pretty good projection, Glenn. I think you'll agree. And, of course, if you scale it up to full-time play, all of a sudden you're looking at a 20-plus dollar player. Always warms my heart when Baseball HQ and their great methodology agrees with my instincts. <laughs> In the American League, how about a pitcher that gets your thumbs up? Uh, I am an unabashed uh, fan uh, of the Klubot, Corey Kluber, but this is a guy whose 415 ERA is, is masking some just terrific stats, and we know how good he is. He's a Cy Young winner, but in his last uh, 19 innings, he struck out 28 hitters. Um, that 415 ERA is, is not real, as the 325 fielding independent pitching shows. And you have a starting pitcher with a 14.5 swinging strike percentage. That means guys are not squaring him up. They're not seeing the ball well. He's on a good team. This is a guy who's going to be undervalued and have a big-time second half. This raises an interesting question for me, Glenn. Uh, Corey Kluber, of course, was on the DL, which immediately makes some people nervous. But uh, how do you react when a pitcher spends a relatively short stint on the DL as far as your expectations once he gets back? Well, it depends on what the injury is, first of all. You know, when you start talking about a guy who's had you know, I'll make this up, uh, elbow problems, and you'll hear about more elbow problems, you, you start to worry. So one of the things is, what's the injury, and do they have an injury history? And the second thing I like to do, especially um, with pitchers, is read, or if, if I have the opportunity to, talk to um, people who are around the team and who really know what's going on. So with Corey Kluber, we had Jensen Lewis, uh, former Indians pitchers, now covers the team on our show, Colton the Wolfman. And uh, Jensen Lewis, who knows something about pitching since he pitched and closed in the big leagues, uh, said he has no worries whatsoever about the health of Corey Kluber coming back. And so far, uh, my friend Jensen's a pretty darn smart. For the record, we should point out Corey Kluber was on the deal with a back problem, not an arm-related problem. So that is something of a reassurance. Uh, in the National League, who's a pitcher that gets your thumbs up? Uh, Zach Godley is is my pick. This is a guy who's, who's really come out of nowhere and uh, there's a little bit of an emotional attachment. We picked him up on uh, reserve round in the 12-team NL-only Labor League, and he has basically stepped in for uh, Noah Syndergaard for us, and, and so I'm very partial to Zach Godley. But if you take a look at these uh, numbers, he's, he's done extraordinarily well, including having given up only four earned runs in his last three home starts. People are very worried about pitchers in Arizona, but he's been fine at home. And his advanced metric, 62% ground ball rate, which, Patrick, you know, is super elite, 13% swinging strike percentage, and 
64 first pitch strike, all the indicators are that Zach Godley is going to continue to pitch well on a team that can hit, and he pitches in a bad park for pitchers, but it doesn't seem to affect him this year. I like Zach Godley as well. Uh, the very high ground ball rate is enticing. I'd like to see a few more strikeouts, uh, Rick. We have him at 7.3 strikeouts per nine. That's about, what, 18% or so. Uh, it's it's good, not great, is what I'd say, kind of league average. But uh, Zach Godley's definitely getting the, the job done. So, Glenn Colton's thumbs up. Go to Nick Castellanos and Mike Zanino. Javier Baez of the Cubs. Corey Kluber of Cleveland and Arizona's Zach Godley. Now let's move over to the thumbs down players. Glenn, these are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious, maybe sell while you can or avoid in a trade situation. In the American League, who's a hitter you think deserves the thumbs down? I'm going to go with Alex Avila, Patrick. Uh, You can't argue with what he's done, Uh, hitting over 300. He's got nine home runs from catcher. That's fantastic. But this is a guy who can't hit lefties at all. He's hitting under 100. Forget about the Mendoza line, under 100 against lefties. And he's got a BABIP of over 400. For a catcher who is uh, not fleet of foot, that is absolutely unheard of and unsustainable. And some of Avila's success has come because James McCann has been on the DL. McCann is back. He's a guy they really like there. So I think you're going to see a sharp reduction in Avila's playing time, and there's just no chance that he can come anywhere close to a 400 BABIP, so that batting average is going to sink as well. This is a prime sell-high candidate. I tried to get Alex Avila in the American League tout uh, dra- uh, auction, I guess I should call it. Uh, Jeff Erickson beat me to it. I'm kind of sad about that. Uh, who's a thumbs-down hitter in the National League? I'm going to go with Ryan Zimmerman. Um, yes, he's been phenomenal. I mean, people are talking about him as you know a potential MVP candidate. But let's take a look at what's been going on here. This is a guy who has not had 600 at-bats in the big since 2009. That's eight seasons he hasn't been able to play full-time, so to think he's going to do that again this year is uh, is playing with a bit of fire, Patrick, and I take a look at a 391 BABIP for a guy who's not very fleet of foot, and I think the batting average is going to come down uh, in the heat of summer. And then, you know, with all the home runs he's hitting, his fly ball rate is the same as it was last year, but his home runs per fly ball is up at 31%. You know better than most, Patrick, that's an unsustainable number. So I'm not saying Ryan Zimmerman falls off the shelf, but when you look at the advanced metrics plus the injury risk, he's my thumbs down. I should say that of late I've been looking more at uh, home runs per hard hit fly ball rate because I just think it doesn't make sense to include medium and soft hit fly balls as a denominator in that particular metric. But even at that, uh, Zimmerman is well ahead of where we would expect that that to normally land. Uh, Going over to the mound, how about a pitcher in the American League who gets the Glenn Colton thumbs down? I'm going to go with Jose Quintana. I mean, there's no arguing that he's had some very good seasons over the last few years, but he has constantly outpitched the uh, advanced metrics and the indicators, his ground ball rate steady, his first pitch strike is up, his swinging strike is up, and yet he's got a 5-3 ERA and a 1-4-1 whip. Part of this is worrying about where he's going to get traded and where he's going to go, and part of it is just catching up to the advanced statistics. A lot of people are saying, oh, once he gets traded, he'll settle in. I don't buy that. Players are human beings. All of a sudden, he'll be in a new team with new city, living in a strange place, new teammates, new pitching coach. It takes time to adjust to that. I just think this is not going to be a big year for Jose Quintana. And those who are buying, thinking there's an upswing, I think are going to be disappointed. 
You know, Jose Quintana, when I look at him, Glenn, just this seems like a very odd case. His whip is quite high, but his hit rate is not abnormal. He's walking a few more guys than usual in the past. I don't see where a lot of these problems are coming from, but they're definitely coming from somewhere. He's a minus dollar value player in 5x5 five five so far this year. I don't think anybody expected that. How desperate would you have to be to maybe try to coerce him off some other guy's team as a real buy low at this stage? Well, I mean, look, it depends on where you are, right? If you are a uh, a team that's down in the standings and you just lost um, pitchers, I mean, in an AL only, if you're a Sabathia and Andres owner and all of a sudden, you, you know, not that those guys are superstars, but they're productive pitchers, you need to replace him and you're down in the standings, you roll the dice. If you're a team that's looking to go from third to first, this is not the place I would go to try to make my last jump. We should point out his last three starts have been really terrible, uh, 2.7 innings and seven earned runs against Boston, and then he had uh, five and a third innings and an earned run against Tampa. That wasn't so bad, but then five innings, three earned runs uh, against Cleveland. I don't know. I'm with you. I think Jose Quintana, there's something going on there. I don't know what it is, but I don't think I'd be willing to pay for it. Finally, a National League pitcher gets your thumbs down? I'm going with a pitching staff on this answer, Patrick, and it's the New York Mets. Um, so much talent. But everybody seems to get hurt. Wheeler, Lugo, Thor, Harvey, Familia. This, this is just a team that doesn't seem to know how to take care of its pitchers. So I want a thumbs down to the entire Mets pitching staff for the rest of 2017. And I talked about that pitching staff with Harold Nichols a little while ago in our National League Market Watch. It is a mess. There's no two ways about it. And it doesn't look like there's any sort of light at the end of the tunnel, right? Not that I can see. I mean, Matt Harvey just went on the DLB out for a few weeks. They just announced uh, that uh, Thor, Noah Syndergaard, is not even going to start throwing for four more weeks. That puts uh, you know him just starting to, to get back uh, in mid-July, so... Maybe you get the first week of August. Maybe you'll get two months out of him, though that's the optimistic look. Uh, you know, Lugo and Matt just came back. Neither one of them has ever pitched a full season. There's no reason to think they can. This is just a disaster. It is, and, uh, you know, I have to think that as the Mets sink slowly out of sight as far as any playoff aspirations they have, I could see them easily shutting Noah Syndergaard down for the entire season and hoping that he gets a full off-season of recovery and, and uh, uh, rehabilitation and maybe comes back next year strong And uh, because there's really no reason for the Mets to bother with him at this point if they're already, I think, eight or ten games out of a wild-card spot. And the, just looking at the team, it doesn't look like there's any hope there, really. Yeah, I think that, you know, that's certainly something that could happen, but there are different schools of thought, and I'm not expert enough to know whether, you know, the mental aspect of a player being able to get back on the field in September um, so that they go into the offseason with confidence is something that really works or not, but I know there is a school of thought that thinks that, so it may be that they push them on the field for, for preparation reasons, if you will. And I'm not necessarily counting the Mets out per se, but boy, uh, I'm going to pull a Jason Collette next year at Labor NL, and when a Mets pitcher comes up for bid, I'm walking out the door just to make sure I don't bid. <laughs> that sounds like an excellent plan. Uh, try to take control of your own worst uh, worst instincts about certain guys. Just get up and leave and come back when the, when the uh, shooting is over. Glenn, this has been a treat. Tell us uh, where we can hear and read more from Glenn Colton. 
certainly. Every week you can read my Week That Was column uh, on FantasyAlarm.com. Uh, I'll also be writing football during the course of the football season. And, of course, on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio, Colton the Wolfman, Rick Wolf, and I are on every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern uh, talking baseball, talking fantasy football. And uh, one day soon we're going to have guest star Patrick David, which will be really fun. Yeah, um, I'm at your disposal, as the saying goes. I, I I was on your show once before, a year or two ago, and it was a lot. It was a lot of fun. You take a lot of phone calls from listeners and stuff. It's really interesting, and of course, your column is must read for me. Uh, Glenn, thanks a million for helping us out. Hope to c- talk to you at least once more during this season, and of course, I'll hope to see you in Arizona in the fall or Tout Wars next year in the draft. Thanks again for talking with us, and have a great year. Thank you, Patrick. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to. Uh Coming back whenever you want me on. Glenn Colton writes regularly at FantasyAlarm.com and appears at SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio, as you heard, every Tuesday night at 10 on Colton and the Wolfman. Next up, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. It's a lot of good listening still coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the HQ Radio. Hey guys, PD here, reminding you when you listen to Baseball HQ Radio, we're bringing you information from BaseballHQ.com, which we call the best fantasy baseball website in the business. But you're only hearing a tiny percentage of all the great information that's on the site from before spring training to after the World Series. Just this week in Playing Time Today, Baseball HQ analysts looked at injuries to Matt Andrees, Chris Davis, Josh Reddick, Adonis Garcia, and Cesar Hernandez. In The Big Hurt, the excellent injury analysis column, Matt Cederholm brought readers up to date on injuries to Andrew Triggs, Matt Andrees, Lance McCullers, and more. And in Buyer's Guide, Stephen Nickrand looked at pitcher and batter splits with the bases empty and runners on. And all of that's just a small fraction of the fantasy baseball intelligence for winners that's available every day at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at St. Louis pitching prospect Luke Weaver is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The St. Louis Cardinals have had an impressive run of success over the past decade despite having a modest payroll. The key to that success has been the development of homegrown talent and on opening day 2017, the club had 14 players on the 25-man roster that were drafted and developed in-house, second most in baseball behind only the San Francisco Giants. The Cardinals organization isn't nearly as deep as it was a few years ago, but they continue to churn out Major League talent, and the next player likely to make an impact is 2014 first-rounder Luke Weaver. The 23-year-old Weaver got off to a late start due to a back injury he suffered in the first start of the season, but has been lights out since his return to action. In eight AAA starts, Weaver is 6-1 with a 1.84 ERA, with just 7 walks and 49 strikeouts and a 214 batting average against in 44 innings pitched. Weaver comes after hitters with a solid 90-94 to mile an hour fastball that at times can get up to 97. 
He backs up the fastball with an average breaking ball, but a plus changeup. The key to his development over the last several years has been his ability to locate all three offerings, and Weaver has walked just 42 batters in 241 minor league innings. Weaver had a brief stint in the majors last year and looked overmatched in eight late-season starts with the Cardinals, but his batting average on balls in play was an unlucky 386. Long-term Luke Weaver profiles as a solid mid-rotation starter with number two upside, and he looks ready for his second shot at the majors and makes a nice speculative play in NL-only formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Our recent prospect coverage includes call-up reports on Oakland third baseman Matt Chapman, Colorado catcher Tom Murphy, Houston outfielder Derek Fisher, and a whole bunch more call-ups. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at San Diego outfielder Jose Perella. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. At 27-40 and 40 through their first 67 games, the San Diego Padres have been one of the worst teams in baseball this season. Their young roster and shaky pitching staff suggest that things aren't getting better in Petco anytime soon. But there's some interesting news in the Padres outfield lately that could have some fantasy impact, and that could be in the form of Jose Perella. Brian Slack covered Perella as part of San Diego's larger outfield playing time picture this week in his playing time tomorrow column on BaseballHQ.com, noting that a setback to Alex Dickerson, who's been sidelined by a bad back, could be out for the rest of the season. That combined with an injured Travis Jankowski and Manny Margot, along with Ryan Shimp's demotion, has opened up playing time for Jose Perella, and he's taken full advantage. Perella's 15 for his first 34 with a couple home runs, and he spent the majority of this week is the Padres starting left fielder after moving over from second base. Perella's small sample success comes on the heels of 13 home runs and 8 steals in just 181 Pacific Coast League at-bats with over a thousand OPS this season. Perella's a 27-year-old with limited major league experience, so the upside here isn't huge, but he's never really been given a shot at regular playing time in the big leagues. That's about to change with a San Diego team with nothing to lose, and fantasy owners in deep leagues should look to see if you can ride the Perella wave. He isn't really owned anywhere and could turn a cheap profit. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio Podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Oakland third baseman Matt Chapman, we heard about him already, and Seattle's starting pitcher Sam Gaviglio. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. 
As all eyes are on Aaron Judge and the Yankees of the East, let's head west where 24-year-old rookie Matt Chapman, who just made his Major League debut as one of two frequent flyers that will profile this week, has developed quite a reputation for defense. Maybe that's because he's learned from one of the best. That's right, Matt Chapman has learned a lot from former El Toro high school teammate Nolan Arenado, even drawing comparisons to the four-time gold glove winner from his Oakland teammates. However, perhaps one of the most accurate descriptions of Matt Chapman's value came from our own Jack Thompson, as December 9th Dynasty Reload column on BaseballHQ.com, where he described Matt Chapman as having outstanding defensive upside with only contact standing in the way of a major league career. That seems to be a very accurate description given Matt Chapman's 64% contact rate in the hitter-friendly Pacific Coast League. In other words, Matt Chapman strikes out way too much. His 64% contact rate in 2017, even his 70% career contact rate in the minors, is well below the 90% benchmark we've set BaseballHQ.com to highlight baseball's best hitters. That's why Matt Chapman, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be log shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are still available in your league. However, as Nick Richards pointed out in the June 16th edition of call-ups on BaseballHQ.com, Matt Chapman may provide great power with eventual 30-40 to 40 home run potential. And with great power comes great responsibility, or at least the responsibility to pick him up. And while you're at it, take a closer look at 27-year-old Seattle Mariners starter Sam Gavilio, who is currently 3-1 with a 3.41 ERA through six starts after making his major league debut against the Toronto Blue Jays on May 11th. Described by Rod Truesdale in the May 18th edition of Playing Time Today as a pitch-to-contact ground baller, Sam Gavilio often gets overlooked in most leagues. With his ground ball rate currently hovering at 53%, but having only 24 strikeouts and 34 innings pitched, Sam Gavilio won't help much in the strikeout category. However, we do know that a higher ground ball rate often translates to a lower ERA and more wins. In other words, if your team is currently suffering from Jose Quintana's two wins and 13 starts and his 5.30 ERA this season, maybe a player like Sam Gavilio would be an excellent hedge for your pitching staff. After all, this game is built on adjustment, constant adjustment, according to former Seattle Mariners manager Mike Hargrove, and maybe adding both Matt Chapman and Sam Gavilio are all the adjustments you'll need for now. And with that, the defense rests. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong bets to start. Ratings of minus one or worse are strong bets to sit. Between the ones, we call that the wild card range. They're toss-ups, and you'll have to consider each one based on your own risk appetite. With a look at weekend matchups, including Arizona left-hander Robbie Ray, Tampa rookie Jake Faria, and others, here's Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick. Let's focus on Father's Day this Sunday for both our marquee matchup and our Sunday surprise. The top four matchup ratings all fall on Father's Day, and our marquee matchup features a face-off between the starters with two of them. Both marquee matchup starters have wildcard matchup ratings on the positive side of zero, and both are 25 years old. Philadelphia right-hander Ben Lively has a matchup rating of 054 for his home start against Arizona. 
Lively has made just three major league starts all this season. So, of course, small sample caveats apply. He's eaten 21 innings, but has struck out only five and walked seven, posting an expected ERA of 575 and a BPV, or base performance value, of minus 23. BaseballHQ.com Miners analyst Matthew St. Germain gave Lively a 7A rating, meaning a 90% chance of reaching his number four or number five starter potential, concluding, quote, he should be able to eat plenty of innings for years to come and could exceed his modest expectations, unquote. Ben Lively may be in our marquee matchup, but he's not our marquee matchup man. Before we get to that, let's look at the two teams involved, the Phillies and the Diamondbacks. This week's USA Today Power Rankings have the Phils dead last in Major League Baseball. The D-backs are tied for sixth and all alone in fourth for the National League. The one-sentence reason for Arizona's lofty status? Quote, Robbie Ray on pace to strike out 267 batters paired with a 107 whip, unquote. Arizona has the third most productive run-scoring offense in the National League and allows the second-fewest runs. Philadelphia is 13th in the National League for both runs scored and runs allowed. The Phillies are last in the National League East with the worst one-loss record in the majors, while the D-backs are locked in a battle for the National League West division lead with the Dodgers and Rockies. Arizona is clearly the superior team. Portsider Robbie Ray has a matchup rating of 071 going into the mismatch at Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia. Our marquee matchup man is in his fourth season for Arizona and now has seen more than 1,500 plate appearances. It's unfairly premature to make comparisons with Sandy Koufax and Randy Johnson, but like a lot of lefties before him, Robbie Ray is developing the ability to better locate his pitches. His first pitch strike rate is above our 60% benchmark at 61%, and his swinging strike rate is far above our 10.5% benchmark at 14%. That combination results in an elite dominance rate of 11.7 strikeouts per 9 innings pitched. Ray's soft contact rates have risen each year, going from 12% to 19%, and he's brought his expected ERA down to a career-best 331. Last year, Ray had an outstanding BPV or base performance value of 128, and this year it's a similar 123. Evidence of Robbie Ray's progress, though, is the $36 difference between his minus $11 roto value last season and his $25 roto value this season. For Arizona and for fantasy owners, Robbie Ray has arrived. There are only two matchup ratings in the recommended start range this Father's Day weekend, and the higher of those is 132. That belongs to the latest Tampa Bay Rays young gun, 23-year-old right-hander Jake Faria. BaseballHQ.com ranked Faria as the number seven prospect in the strong Tampa system, and Miners analyst Jeremy Deloney gave him a 7B rating. That means a 70% probability of becoming a mid-rotation starter. Faria was called up for spot starts when Matt Andrees went on the DL with a growing strain, and the rookie responded with two PQS-dominant efforts. Now that Andrees is out for two months or more with a stress reaction in his right hip, Faria is one to watch. At AAA Durham this season, Faria had an otherworldly dominance rate of nearly 13 strikeouts per nine, leading the International League with 84 strikeouts in 59 innings. In his 13 Major League innings, he struck out 13 and walked only three. His initial first pitch strike rate is just 57%, but his swinging strike rate is a fine 14%. If Faria's small sample hit rate of 28% holds up and his control rate regresses toward his minor league career rate of 3.3 walks per nine, our projected whip of 128 for the rest of the season is a reasonable expectation. Faria's early expected ERA is 302. 
Assuming his small sample strand rate of 83% regresses toward the league average of 72%, Faria could still better our expected ERA projection of 419 for the remainder of the year. Don't sleep on our Sunday surprise from the Tampa Bay Rays, Jake Faria. Here's hoping all the fathers out there keep bringing their kids to baseball games and all the sons and daughters start bringing their dads. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com with a shout-out to my daughters. Baseball HQ Matchups analyst Greg Fishwick has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about my 10-week team assessment. On Wednesday, I checked the standings in my Tout Wars American League only. It's a 12-team league, and as of Tuesday's games, I was 12th. Now, I'm not claiming to be the world's finest fantasy baseball owner, and the Tout AL League is full of very tough, experienced competitors. But I finished a close second last year, and I thought I had a pretty successful auction this year. Indeed, this year I had a terrific start, and I was even battling for the lead in the first few weeks, but then my hitters started making less contact than the nerd at the prom, while my pitchers compensated by giving up more contact than the Kardashians. My points total fell faster than the Pirates of the Caribbean box office, and even with early season volatility, I found myself bouncing around between 6th, 7th, down to 10th. But now, geez louise, 12th? If I were an egg carton, I'd be the last one fried. If I were a box of Krispy Kremes, I'd be the plain. If I were a bouquet of roses, all right, that's enough if I was. Fortunately for me, I still believe in Ron Chandler's excruciating patience philosophy. And since it was time for me to do my usual 10-week appraisal, I decided to see if patience was indeed called for. And while my chances of waving the pennant look pretty remote, I still feel confident I can be competitive. I do my team assessment pretty much like you do yours, only with more bourbon. I start with an attempt to understand not so much where my team is, but where it's going. And of course, that means projecting the league to its end. Again, you probably do something similar. The Tout Wars stat service on Roto.com has a gizmo that projects the final standings using two different sets of player projections, one from Baseball HQ and another one called Davenport which I think has something to do with the fine analyst Clay Davenport, although it might have something to do with the county seat of Scott County in Iowa, the largest of the Quad Cities. In draft prep, I combine three or four different projection sets, average the numbers, and look for outliers. I wanted at least three projections for this assessment, so I added a third from a reputable online source. A bit of number crunching, a bit of data naming, and a lot of computer cursing later, I had the projected composite results. The top four teams were led by Mike Podhoser making up the first tier. Then came the fifth through eighth place teams led by me, then a two-team race for ninth and tenth, and finally two teams battling for the seller. And remember, these are projected, not current stats. The first question in standing assessment is the same as the first question getting aboard a New York subway. How wide is the gap? I'm 9 points out of third place, 11.5 out of second, and 14 behind the leader, again in projected standings. So my second immediate question is, where's that bourbon? Followed by, how likely am I to be able to close some or all of these gaps? 
For that, I have to dig down into the projected category outcomes. And again, these outcomes are based on the averages from my three projection sources, and it's here where some tactical considerations start to take shape. I start with the bats. In home runs, I don't think I can catch Seth Trackman, and unfortunately I can't afford to deal away any more power because I have Steve Moyer and Chris Liss right behind me, well within the margin of error of the projections. I will keep in mind those two sub-200 home run teams at the bottom of the category, and I'll be checking as I go on to see if I'll have a surplus somewhere that might interest them. Potential gain here, I'm going to say zero. In RBIs, I only need a net gain of about... Uh, RBI and a half per week to pick up four points in the category. That seems doable, especially if Mike Napoli starts producing once he comes back from the DL. I also don't feel a ton of pressure coming from behind. I'm going to rate the potential gain here as plus four. In stolen bases, it looks like three points are easily within grasp. I'm at 79 bags, and the next three guys are 81, 82, and 82. After that, the leaders are, well, running away from the rest of us. My worry on this one, though, is that the projections might be overly generous to my team. I'm currently last in stolen bases because of slow to non-existent stolen base starts by Ian Kinsler, who just got his third the other night, Danny Espinoza, who's been a comprehensive disaster, Lonnie Chisenhall, and Alex Gordon. Those four players had 58 stolen bases last year, which means on a prorated basis they should be around 21 or 22 right now. They have six among them. If the projections are waiting last year and these players aren't cooperating this year, there could be more downside here than upside. Still, I'm going to look at the upside and say my potential gain is plus three. In runs, I think Larry Schechter's 10th point is up for grabs. I'm only a few behind him, so it's a potential gain for sure. I know leader Mike Podhorzer is getting Mike Trout back, but making up 17 runs scored in 16 weeks could get me that 11th point. It's not an unthinkable proposition. I'm going to say my potential gain here is plus two. Then we come to on-base percentage. Yoikes. I have five hitters over 335 and a couple more who are pretty well over 300, but their combined buoyancy is being anchored, in the bad sense of the term, by Alex Gordon, who only recently climbed above 300 for on-base, and I have four hitters way under 300, led, if that's the word, by Espinosa at 244 and J.J. Hardy at 223. I wasn't even playing him. I mean, 223? How does he even get to play in a major league uniform? More to the point, how come he's playing in my uniform? Well, injuries. Barring some sudden outstanding resurgence, I'm going to say my potential gain here is zero. So when I add up my potential hitting gains, I see the potential for at least nine points, with gains coming from three of the four guys ahead of me in the overall. I can get two points from Trackman, two points from Podhorzer, and one from Liss. So if everything were to fall perfectly with my hitters, the top five would be Mike Podhorzer at 81, Trackman at 78.5, Jason Collette at 78, me at 78, and Chris Liss at 77. Hey, what do you know? It's a race after all. The assessment continues with the pitching side. In wins, I'm clearly going to be able to grab the 10th and 11th points, and while I'm not sure if Lissa's 8-win advantage is surmountable, it really is only one win net over every two weeks, and his rotation includes Chris Tillman and Kevin Gosman, so I'm optimistic. With any kind of run support and bullpen performance, I could, even should, already have had about 10 more wins. I should add Danny Duffy back around the All-Star break and Drew Smiley possibly around the trade deadline. 
That'll mean a lot of starting pitching on my roster, and maybe enough of a lead by then in wins and Ks that I could arrange a tactically helpful deal. My potential gain here is plus three. In saves, I don't have much reason for optimism. I'm holding out hope that the Royals managed to ship Kelvin Herrera out as part of their rebuilding process, and that as a result my Joaquim Soria might grab seven or eight saves enough to get me past Colton Wolf and pick up a potential gain of just plus one. In ERA, Mike Podhorzer is going to be tough to catch, as he's running only three starters right now with Felix Hernandez on the DL and a whole bunch of good Lima-type relievers. But I feel like I still do have a reasonable shot at snabbing two points just on the projections error bars. It's that close. Potential gain, plus two. In whip, it's pretty much the same story. Again, Podhorzer looks like he has the category nailed, but after him and probably Lore Michaels, it should be another dogfight. I can see three points here, again just looking at the normal error from the projections. Potential gain, plus three. In strikeouts, I project to win the category as I always expected. I'm pretty close now, and adding Duffy and maybe Smiley should cement that. I like my chances even if I deal away a few of my starters. And I have to hope that Colette and Schechter can push past Podhorzer and nudge him down a couple of points in the category. Still, my actual potential gain is zero. Can't gain on a win. That's a potential total gain of 8 points, again with the added benefits of passing some overall competitors in some of the categories. Particularly, I would get Seth Trackman three times and list once. So, if everything goes according to Hoyle in both hitting and pitching, the final tally shows me at the top with 86, followed by Podhorzer at 81, Trackman at 75.5, Colette at 78, and Chris Liss at 76. David wins! David wins! The David wins! Apologies to John Sterling. Now listen, I know this kind of analysis has a lot of problems. First, the error bars. I mentioned these earlier, and I try to ameliorate the composite error by averaging several sources. But I've been around rotisserie-style fantasy baseball long enough to know that projections like these are inherently unreliable. I also know that the individual small errors could very well compound to make aggregate big errors, and I know those big errors could work against me. But all that said, I can see a few ways to get into the mid-80s, which usually means a top result in this tout AL league. I can see 14 points total for the asking in RBIs, stolen bases, runs, wins, ERA, and whip. I can see a few other points here and there, as I mentioned, with a couple of breaks going my way, and there are categories where the other top teams could lose a point or three. And remember, I don't need all those points to be competitive, just some. As well, it's always hard to know how to include currently DL'd players and how much to discount the active players who are going to lose their spots once those DL players returning. Unfortunately, I have a terrible example in our league in Mike Podhorzer's team. Our current and projected overall leader has Mike Trout on the DL. Pods could easily gain about 10 points just from the effect of Trout returning to service, maybe even starting before the All-Star break. My plan to deal with this is to close my eyes, put my fingers in my ears, and go, na 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 very loudly. But all in all, where there's life and a projection spreadsheet, there's hope. There's an axiom in Bridge that goes something like, if the only way to make your contract is for the King of Spades to be in West's hand, then you have to play as though the King of Spades is in West's hand. In other words, you have to figure out your path to success, then grab your metaphorical machete, 
and start hacking through whatever brush is blocking you from taking that path. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, the Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 16th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 23 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Glenn Colton from FantasyAlarm.com and the Colton and the Wolfman show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Glenn is a deserving Hall of Famer and a very fine fantasy baseball expert, a lot of fun to talk to as well. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky, And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, and please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. That really does help us keep this podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our feature guest expert will be Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Scott Pianowski coming up on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.